Before the episode starts, I just want to take another moment to thank our new Patreon, Gabriel. Thanks for your support. And also our earlier Patreon, Dan, who sent us a very nice and encouraging email this week. Much appreciated. If you too would like to help support Unseen Academicals and Alice and myself, as well as getting bonus episodes like the recent one we did on Neil Gaiman's Midsummer Night Stream and the Sandman series, as well as all our episodes in advance, we're running a bit behind schedule at the moment, but the first of the Carpet Jugulum ones, which are probably going to be two parts, should be up there by the end of the month, and you'll get it first by signing up at patreon.com slash Pod. Thanks again, guys. It's Discworld! It's Discworld! Podcast! Analysis! Yeah! Alright, so I'm Josh. And I'm Alice. And we are the Unseen Academicals. Still! <laughs> we continue to be both unseen and academical. And today we are looking at the 18th Discworld book and the 5th Witch's novel, Masquerade, wherein Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og venture to the big city of Ankh-Morpork to recruit the multifaceted singing witch Agnes Knit into their coven, following McGrath's departure, and find themselves getting caught up in a series of ghostly crimes and the melodramatic nonsensical world of... Opera! <laughs> Have I been waiting three weeks to do that? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and we're going to use the book to explore ideas of the triple goddess, the fan of the opera in its many guises, distinctions between high and low culture, masks and physical appearances, as well as the archetype of the gothic villain and its theatrical transformation into a romantic hero of sensibility. But first, Alice, in honour of the RuPaul's Drag Race recap podcast, could you please name some combination of things you liked and things you did not like? We've just got rid of the rules because I can't follow them. (laughs) (laughs) You've proved yourself incapable. <laughs> um, and I have a feeling I'm not going to get two things you liked. No, I worked from. really hard on this to follow the rules this time. I really, okay. yeah. Okay, two things I liked. I enjoyed Grebo, particularly, and we'll talk about this later because there's the scene where it's like, um, he can't just be Grebo, which I've always said was a damn silly name for a cat. Well, he looks aristocratic, Nanny began. He looks like a beautiful, brainless bully, Granny corrected her. Aristocratic, repeated Nanny. And <laughs> then she goes, same thing, right? This is the Byronic hero in a nutshell, and it was about a cat, so it was like all my favorite things. Right. <laughs> um, I do have this later, but you do recall when I asked you in Witches Abroad whether you thought Grebo was Byronic, and you said no, I and I was outraged. I still don't think he is, but okay. they're trying to, like, do stuff with it here. I'm like, oh, they're returning to it, and that that's funny. Um, so they're engaging with that debate. So um, one thing you liked was Grebo and you had a second one you reckon I do it's not it's not a big one I just really loved <laughs> I sat there and laughed and laughed when the I think it's an ogre it's like what's your what's your role here and it's Ed Eater <laughs> and it's like either he's an editor or he's a head eater and I just it's still fun funny oh no head hitter <laughs> yeah head hitter sorry that's it so yeah yeah the head hitter he's the um he's the troll who's the bodyguard at troll. The, um, that's it. the printing press yeah oh it was funny um, Carver Undrum <laughs> Yes. He's not bad. The trolls are good. I also enjoyed, like, there was a chorus of groans from the chorus. I enjoyed those aspects, but, like, (laughs) that's nothing to write home about. What didn't I like, you ask? Yes. Hang on. I also liked Nanny and their trip to Ankh-Morpork, and I think otherwise I didn't. (laughs) Right. Because, yes, the reason I'm being so apprehensive is the the text message you sent me last night was, I hate this book very much. (laughs) (laughs) I threw it down in disgust. (laughs) 
when oh, I finally ours. finished it. That's what I know. I've read a bad book when I have to throw it across the room when I'm done. And when it's on the tablet as well, it's less... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's less satisfying. It's risky. So. Mm. All right, so, but th- okay, let's go. Give me the itinerary. What didn't you like about Masquerade? Are you just blanketing everything else? It was else, or? so boring. Like, uh-huh. just okay. insanely boring. Nothing I thought that was new or interesting in terms of reading it. I think, like, thinking about it after and putting the notes together and the things that Pat Pratchett's trying to do with it, okay, that makes it interesting. But the book itself wasn't interesting or engaging to read. The- they weren't doing anything particularly new with the characters, maybe a little bit with Nanny, but even then it was the old stuff again. I was bored the whole time. Um, all right, well, I'll give my my two things, and, and I think I have a couple of things I, I don't like as well, so I've broken the rules. Um... And I think we have both similar and different takes on this book, I think, because I also don't think this is a great book, um, but I think maybe for for similar but different reasons, we'll get into this. This will make more sense once I explain myself. So the things I like. The first thing I like is Agnes. I like Agnes. I think she's a good character. Cool. Um, I wish she was developed more, both here and in other books. Um, but I think as far as, like you were saying, you wanted to see the witches from Lords and Ladies that were aspiring to be witches actually taken under the wing. That's sort of what we get here. Yeah, I think I agree with you. It's just not developed, is it? Yeah, I think she is the basis of a good character. I think she's a very interesting character that doesn't get used very well. So I like her. I like her as a person. <laughs> Less than as a character, if that makes sense. I like you as a person, but not as that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing I like is are all the puns. Yeah. I think as much as this is a weaker Discworld book, I think it's pretty funny. The jokes in it are funny. And that's sort of the difference between, like, one of my major complaints with this is it, it is a rehash of Weird Sisters, both in what it's doing and a lot of the scenes, a lot of the jokes. Yep. We'll get into this. I've been internally debating which one of these I like more, Weird Sisters or... Weird Sisters. Masquerade, because I think Weird Sisters, like, is ambitious in a way this book's not. Like, mm. Weird Sisters is commenting about how Shakespeare changed culture. Like, the, Whereas this is just like, it's an opera silly. <laughs> So that's where I think we're sim- I'm similar with you. I don't think this is doing anything new. I think it's rehashing a lot. Where we're different, though, is I find this quite a light, not compelling, but pleasant read. <gasps> I was never bored. I've never done Because actually, I have read this book since we started this um, podcast. I've read this book three to four times. Because Well, because I read it, um, like, just to begin with when I was going through them all and preparing it put together. Then I went and read, between reading this book the first time and when we had to prepare this episode, I went and read the entire Discworld series. Jesus Christ. Well, through audiobooks. But, mm. you know, I went through all of those books and then went, shit, I have to go back to Masquerade, which was 40 books ago. Um, so I had to reread it then. And when, and when I say reread, like, I put them on at night when I'm trying to go to sleep and listen to the audiobook. That's and, how you and, do it. Right. So it's not in terms of time streaming, but I've been through the story twice. And then I think just even between then, when I started putting the episode together, it had been a while and I'd gone down this rabbit hole with Draculas and, and vampires and stuff for Carpet Jugulum. And, and I was like, I should probably revisit Masquerade again. So I started putting it on again when I was going to sleep and I've drifted off in and out of it at various places. So that's why I say three, two, four. But the entire time I've been happy to go with it. It's not like I found Witches Abroad, uh, not Witches Abroad, uh, Weird Sisters, every time I've read it, a real slog. Like, Hmm. reading it is dull i have to push myself through it here i'm happy to go through the story it's fun it's entertaining i find it's paced pretty well i think pratchett's writing is a lot stronger than in weird sisters um even if it's less ambitious and as we said i think it's quite funny whereas we had a whole the whole first section of our weird sisters episode was about we don't think this book's funny and here's a breakdown of why yeah we're both saying there's jokes in this so i think it's a lighter easier more compelling read but then at the end i just go well, I didn't get anything out of that. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think it was just kind of like 
story with funny jokes in it and the story just wasn't taking me anywhere. The start was compelling when they were still in Lancre and then the journey and the start of Agnes at the opera, I was with it and then it just mm-hmm. lost me. <laughs> I mean, obviously you've had a different experience. Um, for me, it works as just a basic mystery thing. It's like a fun mystery romp. Maybe I just like didn't have the time, like my brain was like, what are we doing? We have to other things to do. Come on. Yeah. Oh, and I'm not, I'm not going to bat for this book. I just, it didn't bog me down the way Weird Sisters has every time. No, I was just going to say, for the record, this book has bogged me down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was no, saying I, to Josh I before, I would go to go to read it and not want to read it and then couldn't read anything else out of guilt. So I've just not read anything for a month. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the worst books. Yeah. Um, so I'm very sorry to inflict that upon you, especially okay. after, you know, how much we were into Lords and Ladies. <laughs> I, having, as I said, gone through the whole Discworld series, what I've become aware of is, I think there's like three of the Witches books would be in my top 10 Discworld yeah, novels. Okay. Right? Equal Rights, Witches Abroad, Lords and Ladies. Three, yeah, top 10 to 15. I do have a list, but it's by far the most uneven of the series, right? Mm. It goes up and down and up and down. And obviously other people, critics and things, thinks think Weird Sisters is great as well. And as we'll see, there's people who like this book and think Carpet Jug is one of the best as well. So it's opinions on it are very varied. Whereas having gone through the other ones, all the death books are great. All the watch books are pretty great with a few exceptions. All the wizard books are pretty bad, but they're also very small. It's sort of a consistent quality. Whereas I find with the witches one, that's up and down and up and down. Like Lords and Ladies is one of the best. This is one of the worst. Mm. Carpet Juggles maybe in the middle somewhere. I don't know. We'll see. But I, I have a strange relationship with Masquerade itself because this was actually the book that got me back into Terry Pratchett. Okay. When Well, when I was working like straight out of school or a bit after school, I, I went and did like six months of a graphic design course and decided that was not for me and dropped out and um, got a job working as a in a plastics recycling factory um, where I was just stacking bags of like powdered plastic. Like I used to do eight tons a day of just lifting these bags of plastic. So I was just doing manual labor at this, at this factory and I started listening to audiobooks while I was doing it. And that's eventually where I was like, after a year of that, I was like, I'm sick of lifting heavy things. I like listening to books. I'm going to go do a literature degree. But in there, I, I was like, oh, those Discworld books, I like them. And then I discovered there was actually, I thought I'd read them all, but there was a handful in the middle, like from about, I think it's about 15 to 20 or like five books in the series that I hadn't read. So I found out, oh, there's these books I, I haven't read from the series with Masquerade and Carpet Jungleland being two of them. And I listened to them and I was like, oh, this is fun. So it got me back into it, but that's when I wasn't reading anything or was reading other things. Whereas now I'm reading everything and all the Discworld books. This is definitely a weaker entry because, yeah, even I've said I've gone through it three or four times just now. Even those experiences have been up and down. Like, I was really excited to come back to this book, having those fond memories of it the first time. And I read it and went, this is trash. This is garbage. There's nothing to it. And then when I came back to it the second time, I'm like, it's all right. It's not as bad as as I thought it was. It's not great, but it's fine. It's pretty fun. And then, like, the last couple times I've been like, oh, there's bits I like, there's bits I don't. So I really feel not really necessarily conflicted, just all over the place with this book. And I'd say that's a good summary of the book itself, all over the place. Right. (laughs) Um, So that's two things I liked. Oh no, because I still haven't finished the two things I like because I wanted to, I wrote down a lot of the jokes that I thought were pretty oh, good yeah, just okay. to establish that this is a funny book for all it's not working. So the best jokes that I wrote down were um, when they go to meet Mr. Goatburger and Granny's told he's in a meeting and she says, how long's this meeting going to be? And they say he's an elongated meter. <laughs> I saw it. That was one of those ones I saw coming. I'm like, are they going to do it? Yeah, he sent me elongated meter. Brilliant. (laughs) When Dr. Undershaft gets hanged, they say he was always very highly strong. There's maybe my favorite joke in the whole book is just calling the play Miserable Les. I just, I love that. Oh, yeah. 
These are very lowbrow jokes, as we have established them I mean, too. I like that they say the chandelier is going to make a crashendo. Um, I like that there's the reference to he's got no nose and Agnes goes to ask, how does he smell? <laughs> That's the joke that kills everyone in Monty Python. Yeah, so there, there's lots of these jokes and there will be other ones that come up as we go through. But constant wordplay and, and puns that I was really enjoying. It feels like Terry Pratchett had all of these jokes about the theatre and the opera that he just was writing down in a book for years and nowhere to put them. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> in an interview with Science Fiction Weekly from the year 2000, Pratchett reveals that he had a fan who worked for the Royal Opera House in London who smuggled him behind the scenes for an hour where he discovered what an insane world opera is and from there the plot of Masquerade unrolled in front of him. Called it. He had been saving up for years. I think he got snuck in to see an opera and was like, this is whack. Wrote <laughs> <laughs> it all down. <laughs> like it was a night's worth of, of ranting. As for what I don't like though... <laughs> Are the fat jokes. Yeah, that's fair. The constant, constant put-downs of of Agnes and reminding you that she's large and her whole character, her whole function is defined by that. She's meant to be unattractive. It, and we've discussed on this podcast, like, this is a thing with Pratchett. There's the cook in Lords and Ladies. There's, um, what's her name in um, Unseen Academicals, the, the kitchen lady who's the main character, but it's always reminded, oh, but she's fat though. She's not pretty like Juliet. This is mm. a constant thing with him. And here it's just, like, it's great. It's so much of it. Anytime Agnes is mentioned, there is a comment about how she's overweight. And even if you want to dismiss it as, oh, it's just a joke or it was of the time or whatever, it's so much. It is a lot. Yeah. So that really bothered me. I didn't like um, the house on fire thing. Could have done without that. Mm. Or could have done with it once at the start and once at the end to have, what's his name, say, I'd take the fire out. But yeah, just getting that repeated all the time. Like, Granny Weatherbax is meant to be the smartest, most capable person in the whole book. She's asking people this weird pop psych question all the time. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. I found that very annoying. And my last thing that I really didn't like about this book, no Magrat. Yeah, no Magrat. Missed her. No good. Nah. I'm going to add, I also didn't like that Nanny was being forced to spend all her money. That just pissed me off. I don't know why. The fat jokes also, but goddamn, leave Nanny alone. She earned that, probably, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. So, yes, we have very uh, mixed opinions about this, and so do the critics, it seems. Um, So, in his pocket guide, Andrew M. Butler gives Masquerade a four out of five, proclaiming Pratchett back to form after a bit of a rut. We've said before how our opinions don't necessarily line up with Butler's rating in the pocket guide, right? He was very into... I think he gave Weird Sisters a 5 out of 5 and said that Wars and Ladies was one of the weaker novels. Yeah, so he says, back to form out of a bit of a rut, which, yes, if you like this book, I can sort of see that. The two preceding novels being Soul Music and Interesting Times. Interesting Times is terrible. That's one of the five books that I think are worse than Masquerade. Soul Music, though, I had memories of being not very strong. Like, when I saw that, I went, oh, yeah, maybe this is a return to form, just then it's a better, more well-constructed, fun book. But having gone through them all, Soul Music was way better than I remembered, so I don't know if I'd buy that. Um, But also notes quite how often reasonably recent Discworld novels are police procedurals on some level during this time. This is two novels after the second watch book, Men at Arms, and just before Feet of Clay, and the watch novels end up being the longest sub-series of the Discworld ones. I think there's nine of them. So he really gets into them in the later part of the series, and this is sort of a police procedural in disguise, right? It's a watch novel without the watch. Yeah. So he's just noticing, yeah, Pratchett's turn into the mystery and, and procedural genre there. Conversely, though, Sunday Times reviewer John Melmoth no is here, Wanderer. to the yep. Wanderer. Fuck, come on, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a mixed review uh, saying Masquerade is not Pratchett's most considerable work by a considerable way, <laughs> while lamenting that the disc used to snap, crackle, and pop with magic. You couldn't throw a stick without hitting some miracle or wonder or another. But now, 
were reduced to special effects that cost literally pounds. Oof. I think there's something to that. I mean, Pratchett does get away from the actual magic as the series goes on, but as we'll discuss, I think there's actually something to this that Pratchett's done deliberately in not having magic feature in this book. There's all the stuff with the tea leaves and like, oh, she could tell the future and it was going to be, she was having a nice beer. Like, it's kind of there, but it's showing how it's, Mm. yeah, I don't know, we'll get to it. Um, Something I found frustrating or unsatisfying about Masquerade is that there's no ghost or magic or fantasy stuff going on, Mm. right? I I do think this is a missed opportunity. Like I said, I wanted Pratchett to do more with the ghost stuff in Weird Sisters and here's a book tentatively about ghosts but there are no actual which is like he's playing on the superstition thing right that's another connection to the Shakespeare stuff is uh, he's playing on the superstitions of the theatre and and the fan of the opera himself but I think there's a missed opportunity here for like a haunted house style narrative Mm. because the point of Discord is like the belief contributes to what's in the world right if you got all this concentration of people in the opera house believing in all these superstitions and believing that it's haunted to actually materialise those things and you've got these references to like the show must go on I'm like why isn't there a spirit of opera forcing them to finish this show that they have to break free from or something. Yeah. And there, there's precedent for this in Discworld because that's what soul music and um, moving pictures are about. Okay. Moving pictures about is about a Lovecraftian spirit of cinema who forces everyone to act like they're in Hollywood. And soul music is about the spirit of rock and roll that won't let its um, person it's possessed like die. So this is something Project's done before and I don't want him just to rehash it. But why does that happen there? And then here it's like, oh no, your superstition aren't real you're all being silly let's be sensible maybe that's the point like in this case it's not and they all think it is well th- that is the point but it yeah. doesn't make sense like why why is the opera house not work on those that logic yeah you're right it's funny but also bad <laughs> That's our one sentence summary it's funny but it's also kind of bad <laughs> that's our take uh, Melmoth continues yeah he did <laughs> Um, that witchery had become a cross between midwifery, housewifery, and homeopathy, <sighs> and witches proceed by headology rather than turning the laws of nature upside down. That was always the case. Right. So this is them sort of missing the point, because he says, if they go on at this rate, they will soon be indistinguishable from other elderly ladies who are preternaturally good at deciding what makes people tick. But that's the point. <laughs> yeah, from the start. Go back and listen to our other episode. That's been the whole point. Do you want to explain who Melmoth is, just in case people don't understand how funny we are? <laughs> Well, it'll come up later when we talk about the Gothic novel, but it's sort of towards the end of the romanticization of Gothic novels into the Gothic revival. Um, he's He wanders forever. He's kind of like the wandering Jew. It's a book. It's a book. Sorry. That, <laughs> that was significant. <laughs> <laughs> it's a book called Malmeth the Wanderer. Alice has read it. I haven't. It's so long. <laughs> But as much as we've complained about the academic neglect of some of the other books in the Witches series, this one doesn't even get a Google Scholar entry. And I don't know why that is. There has things that have been written about it. So maybe that's just something in the algorithm somewhere. But um, yes, there's no record there. But there are lots of references to this, probably more than something like Equal Rights or mm. even Lords and Ladies, maybe. Except all of them are just people mentioning when they list off the books in the Witches series. And they say the Project's Witches series made up of blah, 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 and Masquerade. And then they put it in the bibliography, but don't actually cite or comment it. So many references and articles that I went through and researched for this are that and and nothing else. Hmm. And the ones that are about it all just sort of rehash the same thing that it's about identity and masks. And so there really isn't like a wide breadth or deep 
engagement with this book at all, which maybe because it's, it's a bad one. Nodding. I was really struggling to find something to say about this book because it's not really about anything and everything it's trying to do, like it's been done in Weird Sisters. Mm. It was difficult. I do think I've maybe stumbled across a couple of things, but I, mean, I was saying in the lead up to this episode to you, like I'm having to make up things to say about Masquerade just to fill out the <laughs> um, schedule. Like, not not um, lies or non-factual things, just I'm having to add in, like we're about to do a whole section about the history of the Triple Goddess <laughs> which I've been holding off putting in the other outlines because they were too long. And yeah. then here I needed to pat it out. So <laughs> this whole history of, of witchcraft into this episode, just because there's not that much going on. Yeah. Yeah, nor have I seen it mentioned anywhere in any of the Phantom of the Opera scholarship that I've been through, um, including Anne C. Hall's 2009 book Phantom Variation, which analyzes adaptations of Phantom of the Opera from 1925 to the present. Well, it missed one. Well, yeah. So it also includes books like uh, popular thriller author Frederick Forsyth's 1999 novel The Phantom of Manhattan, the 1994 Goosebumps book Phantom of the Auditorium, and the 2007 erotic novel Unmasked by Colette Gale. <laughs> so this book's like not above, you know, popular cultural adaptations, but is missing what I assume at the time, like this is mid-90s, this is like peak Discworld popularity, just isn't even bothering mentioning yeah. that this happened. Very strange, I thought. Yeah, so we are going to do um, a dive into the history of the Triple Goddess, which is the premise for this novel and why it essentially all takes place. So yes, despite earlier declaring that the natural size of a coven is one, and that witches only get together when they can't avoid it in Witches Abroad, Masquerade begins with Nanny's realisation that McGrath Garlic, wet as a sponge though she was half the time, had been dead right about one thing. Three was a natural number for witches, and that it was an old superstition, older than books, older than writing, and beliefs like that were heavy weights on the rubber sheet of human experience, tending to pull people into their orbit. So this is a rehash of that water running down the mountain metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, but as Pratchett and Simpson observe in The Folklore of Discworld, the idea of the triple goddess dates back almost as far as human civilization itself, noting that the ancient Greeks and Romans spoke of three fates mm-hmm. who held in their hands the thread of each person's life. You had Clotho who spun it on her distaff. La Cherise, who measured it, and in due time, the dreaded Atropos, she who can't be turned aside, who snipped it with the shears of death. The one that is turned away has all this significance in paintings, because um, they always still paint her so her titties are showing, which is interesting. Nice. But it's interesting, like, the reason she's kind of facing away from you is that because of the way fate works, you can't always see it all, you know? Oh, yeah. Side boob. That's all you can see of the future. <laughs> Yeah, and we discussed in the uh, Weird Sisters episode that the Norse also believed in the three Norns, or goddesses of destiny, past, present, and future. That's what where I guess you get the three from. As Pratchett and Simpson explain, however, the specific notion of the maiden mother and crone is only just over a hundred years old. The fates, the Norns, and other female trios in old mythologies, including Shakespeare's Weird Sisters, all traditionally being represented as the same age. Okay. They credit Cambridge scholar Jane Allen Harrison with first sorting these goddesses into three categories in 1903. Well, not three categories, three different age groups in 1903, being the maiden, the mother, and a third one she did not name. So when Pratchett's saying there's the maiden, the mother, and the other one, he's not just being coy, he's referencing the origin of this idea. Cool. These categories were not without precedent, being based upon patriarchal Indo-European traditions that viewed sex as a process for energy to be transferred from women to men. So as Gregory L. Dexter explains in his 1990 book, Whence the Goddess, or Whence the Goddesses, Dexter explains the three stages saying that in the first stage she was a virgin and her powers were in the process of being stored, right? Your untapped energy, potential energy. Similarly, in the alphabet of Bensira that we talked about with regard to Lilith in the Witches Abroad episode, um, the eponymous prophet declares, Moist and sweet and invigorating are the juices of a young woman, but those of an old woman are bitter as 
as goal. They sap your potency like a well whose waters were drawn out by the wind. What else do men need from us? You want our energy too? Like, <laughs> let me have something. <laughs> mm, deeply disturbing. I mean, I guess technically all the people in the baths in the Matrix that are being used as batteries are virgins. Because I've only ever oh, had yeah, sex in it can be d- Dudes can be virgins, but I guess here we're talking That's about true. lady virgins. <laughs> we're much more valuable. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Why aren't the the men already full of um, energy themselves? Good point, Alice. Thank you. You've got the energy to expend, if you get my meaning. (laughs) Yes, I also feel like um, someone would have pointed that out (laughs) 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 at some point. And they were like, no, it's only girls, though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it was part of, you know, the myth making that oppresses women. Fucking men. Um, yeah, so Dexter explains the three stages, saying that in the first stage, uh, the female goddess was a virgin and her powers were in the process of being stored. In the second epoch, uh, she was said to have released her stored powers. She was fertile and she provided energy to males. Her most common role in this epoch was that of a matron. A housewife. Right. Dexter notes that in a balanced, equalitarian society, one might expect that the old woman, full of wisdom and experience, would be highly valued. In patriarchal Indo-European societies in which women had little status, however, the old woman, the crone, was least respected. When a woman had run down her battery, so to speak, and thus no longer had enough energy to give to others, she then became the antithesis of the young virgin who stored energy, or of the matron who transmitted it. I mean, this is still the case. Like, people will tweet, like, empty egg cartons at older women when they're, like, talking about stuff on Twitter and saying your opinion is invalid because you have no eggs. But I did I did share the um that tweet of the guy saying, uh, Taylor Swift is about to turn 30 and she's used 97% of her eggs. I Then I went and Googled it because I got all scared. It's not, it's not looking good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm the one who just turned 31. You're fine. <laughs> um, so in that final epoch of old age, a female figure was viewed in one of two ways. She could be a nurturing grandmother, right, a wise old woman, but often, however, instead of being venerated for her wealth of knowledge, she was made an object of fear or derision. The counterpoint to the wise old woman was the fearsome witch, the latter of whom was considered a dissipator of energy and as such was feared, right? We've talked about the prejudices against old women in yeah. previous episodes. Whether a virgin or a matron, this is the, the crone, whether they've had kids or they're still virgins, they were depicted as barren creatures who were said to use the energy of others to supplant their own wasted forces. So whereas the young virgin represented potential energy, the aged virgin represented the sterility, the barrenness of a woman who has never born children and who can never change her barren state and will therefore never bear sons for the patriarchy. Misogyny. Um. <laughs> There's something in this though, as we'll talk about next episode, I did think about cutting this triple goddess part and making it, like combining it with the first part of Carpet Juggalum because the Carpet Juggalum does deal with the triple goddess thing as well. Essentially the premise is what happens when Grady Weatherwax goes away, how did the power hierarchy shift among the witches. So we will talk about more of that there, but in that book it is implied that one of the reasons that Granny Weatherwax is so powerful is that she is a virgin crone. So she's actually still full of energy and has never relinquished that. Um, I do think that's tied up with some prejudices about the purity of yep. right not having sex, um, but we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to Carpet Juggling. Yeah, so we, we are going to go into more of this in Carpet Juggling. For now, I think, given that this is the, the premise of Masquerade, um, just want to go through each of the stages and talk about how they they apply to what's going on here. So we're going to go in reverse order, I think, because <laughs> the crone is the one that is most relevant to Carpet Juggler, and the virgin is the one that's most relevant here in the recruiting of Agnes, I think. So as Pratchett 
Burton Simpson explained in the folklore of Discworld, the other one was first or at least most influentially defined as the crone by the English occultist Alistair Crowley, who identified her with the Greek nature goddess Hecate, writing in his 1921 novel Moonchild, Hecate is the crone, a woman past all hope of motherhood, her soul black with envy and hatred of happier mortals, a thing altogether of hell, barren, hideous, and malicious, the queen of death and evil witchcraft. But conversely, Crowley declared the virginal Artemis unassailable, fine, and radiant, while the sublime Persephone represented the woman in the fullness of life, for whose sake Demeter cursed the fields that they brought forth no more corn, until Hades consented to restore her to earth for half the year. He's identified um, the crone with Hecate, but also with Demeter, who we've talked about before, is the winter coming through when, I guess, destroying Persephone spring. spring. Yeah, so there's something going on with the seasons there. I know you've mentioned the Persephone myth a bunch. Though I also want to take a second to point out here that Moonchild is the first song on Iron Maiden's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son album, which was based on Olsen Scott Card's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, bringing it back around. It's all interconnected through the mythos of Iron Maiden, whose new album is a fucking garbage file. Ah. Yes. So that's that's where the idea of the, the actual label of the crone comes from Crowley. And his ideas were then perpetrated by the English poet Robert Graves. Do, do you know Robert Graves much? Enough. <laughs> Enough. You know, I know of Robert Graves, but in his 1948 investigation, The White Goddess, which suggests a muse-like mythology surrounding a white goddess of birth, love, and death, uh, which Pratchett cited on a number of occasions, so this is where he's sort of pulling it from, uh, Graves declares Hecate, Circe, Hena, and Persephone all death aspects of the triple moon goddess who were much worshipped by witches. What the hell does that mean? I'm not really sure. Okay. I mean, I guess they're, they're all the crone, saying that, that Hecate... Because Cer- Circe, oh, Hera, yeah. and Hecate are the witch gods. I'm surprised to see Persephone thrown in there. Yeah, she's As the virgin who's then she's raped. She's the birth goddess. Yeah, what? Maybe, maybe Graves doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe. I. This book's very strange. I mean, I called it an investigation because I've got no idea what to call it. Because it's sort of like, it's a series of essays he's written trying to, like, get to the bottom of this triple goddess myth. But it's not like him doing actual research. It's just him meditating on it and being like, I will get to the truth through poetry. So he's essentially making it up. Yes. Is what I gather. Yep. But this is also through Crowley and Graves here. We're having two, I guess Crowley's not really an establishment figure, but upper class men come in and- Unsurprisingly. and promote this female goddess figure. So, but I also think that's interesting in that this idea that is then reappropriated into- like new age Wicca stuff the return to the nature goddess and everything essentially has its roots in um like a a fantasy novel by Alistair Crowley yeah so it's another example of like we talked last episode of the we were talking about the claims of Elizabeth the first to Jesus and the simulacra warrior queens and how all religions made up and it's all based on these stories here we have another example of what is a credible for a given value of credible religious or spiritual movement in in Wicca stuff that's essentially based on like this guy coming in and writing a fantasy novel about all this stuff, you know, things like um, Scientology oh. is another example of like modern religious movements being born out of fantasy. Like we're sort of doing that art imitating life. And yeah, so the crone is kind of prejudiced and, and Granny denies and avoids association with it, right? She doesn't want to be labeled a crone, um, which is a nod to it not having a name, but also the, the prejudiced yeah. things against it. She doesn't want to become the cackling crone like Black Alice, but she is. Yeah, so we'll revisit the crone more next episode. The 
mother role in Pratchett's Coven is, of course, occupied by Nanny Og, the, yeah. the ultimate mother. Although this is, I don't know if we have much to say about this one. It's sort of the least developed aspect of the triad. But as Lorraine Anderson writes in her 2006 master's thesis, which which is which? <laughs> the mother role is naturally a sexual being. Yet although Nanny exudes sexuality in one sense, it is a safe sexuality. And that is essentially spent. <laughs> she hints at and talks about her numerous liaisons, yet she is never sexually active in the novel. They're children's books. <laughs> the closest we get is the attraction of her to the unusual dwarf, uh, Guillermo Casananda, the world's second greatest lover, one of your favourites. And she argues that Nanny, therefore, is also sexless, although with a saucy flavour. Pratchett seeming to have created a coven out of a spinster, an over-the-hill harlot, and a virgin. Wow. Um, arguing that Pratchett, therefore, appears to reinforce rather than rail against the no-sex pleas where British cultural milieu in, li- in which he lives and writes. Not really sure... Uh, about that. This is a master's thesis. Mm. I think Anderson's being a bit iconoclastic here and not giving Pratchett as much credit. I think she's really taken that. I'm going to argue this is a, a sexist thing, but she does like, does Nanny have sex? Yeah, well, I think the point is even her talking about it and making sexy jokes and right. saying sexy things. It's a children's book. They can't have her having like racy doggy style, you know. I, mean, I don't know if you want sex scenes, but it's like you could have something where, you know, they go to her cottage and there's a man leaving or something. There's none of that. It's all her talking of past escapades. I reckon also there's some bits where she's like, oh, I'm back at my cottage and no one will disturb me. And I'm like, oh yeah, what you going to do now, nanny? I think there's a bit of that in there. Because I think she is a grandmother rather than a mother. Yeah. But in terms of the um, the energy cycle thing, like she is really a crone. in the crone stage of life rather than a fertile mother. Yeah. There's something to this criticism that Pratchett's not really engaging with the sexuality of these women. Because even McGrath, who gets pregnant, doesn't know how sex works and, like, is depicted as unsexy. But I do think Nanny is a more subversive figure than Anderson's giving her credit for. Because, yeah, there's something just genuinely subversive about making the old postmenopausal woman the, the sex part. Yeah. And I think she banged Cassandra. I absolutely agree. Nanny is getting it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we've got a pretty stable order of the Maiden Mother and Crone through the first couple of witches' books, but at the end of Lords and Ladies, even before we get to McGrath leaving the coven, there is a disruption of this order with all three of the witches being paired up, right? We, we talked about this in the other episodes, but you got McGrath's with Varence, Nanny's with Cassinander, and Granny's with Ridcully. Mm-hmm. However, as Butler notes, by this book, Cassinander is now nowhere to be seen and Ridcully has appeared in a couple of books without mentioning his past since. Um, nor does Granny find the time to seek him out in the Unseen University while visiting the Opera House. She's busy. Well, she actually does does go and visit him and they reunite in the Shepherd's Crown. The final Discworld book does acknowledge this and they, they'd say we were busy. But Butler does have a point that I think the Opera House is established as across the road from the university or something. So it's like she probably could have been like, hey, by the way, I'll give a guest lecture on feminism or whatever I'm meant to be doing. Uh, yeah, she's meant to be working there, isn't the, she? the publishing subplot. She could have been like, I'm going for one of my women's studies classes. <laughs> I just like that, you know, she was busy. She had stuff on. But yeah, the, the point there where they, they'd all become mothers or in that paired coupled zone and then just immediately that's ditch. We got a hard reset to the maiden mother crone order at the start of this book I thought was interesting. Yeah. But yeah, Butler says the implication um, there is that with all the best will in the world, witching seems to be a single woman's game. Nanny is presumably a widow or divorcee several times over and McGrath's dalliance with Varence requires her to give up witchcraft entirely. And Pratchett himself admits as much in his 1999 Br- British Folklore Society lecture, Imaginary World 
world's real stories, saying Magrat has difficulty reconciling her dual roles, and although she argues that it is possible to combine motherhood and a career, also agrees that she has given up witchcraft after giving birth to her daughter in Carpajuglum, and that from Lords and Ladies on, Magrat generally acts as one of the witches but seems to prefer avoiding the label, uh, saying she never really intended to come back to it since she's now got other things to do. Maybe a bit of part-time aromatherapy or something, but not serious full-time witching. Which was some bullshit. It is and it isn't. I'm not, this is, this gets addressed and this is what we'll go into in the next book, but she did choose. I know, but I thought it'd be better if she stayed and was like the queen and also a witch. It's a good mix. I, I agree. Publicity. You know, witches should get some good publicity. And we do get a, a bit of a revisit of this in Carpet Juggler and the Shepherd's Crown, but yeah, it's never, never quite resolved. Mm. But it is done on, it's McGrath's term. She chooses motherhood and, and also just being a queen. She's like, I've got to run a kingdom. I don't have time to do this anymore. Rather than them saying, well, now you've married this man, you can't be part of our coven. I do think there's a different take there. Yes, everyone can make their own decisions. Unless you want to go be an opera singer and then you'll look down upon until you accept the uh, natural order. As for the Virgin, though, which is the main point in this book with the recruiting of Agnes, Anderson also criticizes Pratchett's portrayal of the Virgin, saying that the two uh, monarchal women, Magrat and Agnes, can attract only a fool or a vampire, which, yes, Agnes becomes the object of desire for a vampire in um, in Carpajugalum. So she's saying the only witches that are attractive to men are attractive to a fool and a monster. Um, but the fool is the king. Mm-hmm. I think that was the point. Point there, yeah. Agnes's vampire attraction is more complex, but we'll discuss that. Uh, I'd fuck a vampire. Uh, well, Agnes is actually it, it, so it's a subversion of it. She resists the vampire. The vampire's like, "Oh, you're hot." She's like, "What? Am I meant to be impressed because you're a vampire?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> But also I think the joke is that, oh, this vampire who's meant to be into bucks and wenches finds this fat girl attractive. It's it's not great. Oh no, okay. Nevertheless, after being abandoned by McGrath, Granny and Nanny consider Agnes a more stable virgin prospect due to her supposed unattractiveness, which seems to derive exclusively from her weight, which is something... As we discussed, Pratchett has an ongoing problem with. As Anderson Moore astutely observes, Agnes's self-definition as the virgin is defined by the male understanding of attractiveness that includes the truth, that's, that's like the quote, that being fat is equated with not having sex, saying that, um, this, yeah, and then she quotes from Masquerade saying, Agnes's life unrolled in front of her. It didn't look as though it were going to have many high points, but it did hold years and years of being capable and having a lovely personality. It almost certainly held chocolate rather than sex, and while Agnes was not in a position to make a direct comparison, and regardless of the fact that a bar of chocolate could be made to last all day, it did not seem a very fair exchange. Sex can be made to last all day. I also can't imagine anyone who'd be attracted to a busty, talented young woman with a wonderful personality and great hair that seems crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I think this is uh, pretty pretty close-minded on Pratchett's part there. Although on that notion of great hair, Anderson also points out that Agnes Knit uh, combines a first name that alludes to a Catholic saint who allegedly grew hair down to her feet in order to cover her nakedness. So yes, in the book, Agnes is known for her vol- voluminous and beautiful hair. I always wondered why we kept getting told Agnes has good hair, and is this the reference here? Also, virgins, I think, are meant to have good hair. Oh, is that a thing? Yeah, it's a Spencer thing, but yeah. Although Anderson then says that her last name is uh, refers to a lousy pest that infects hair, in Agnes Knit, so hair knit, or is maybe an allusion to knitwit. I think she might be reaching here. Mm, agreed. Elsewhere in Masquerade, Pratchett describes Agnes as bright and talented in many ways. Her voice, for one thing, that was her power, finding its way out. Um, And of course, she has a wonderful personality, noting that there's not much chance of her being disqualified. 
So, yes, there is this idea that Nanny and, and Granny, one of the reasons they want her is she will never have sex, so she will never leave them. It's mean. That's just really mean. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not great, right? I think it was meant to be funny. We need to find a girl who can't ever have sex. Uh, yeah, but also, like we just talked about, Nanny, Nanny's also fat, right? She's a fat old woman who yeah. is the sex part. Maybe that's how she got recruited. I don't know. I don't know. And then you got McGrath, who's all thin and stuff, but is meant to be a wet hen, sort of described as waif What is a so- wet hen? <laughs> Like a drip, like a... She's Well, she's a bit wet, like she's a bit soggy. She's a bit sappy, she's a bit damp, she's just a bit... <laughs> Are you meeting wet people in your life? Like, I, I've not met anyone I could describe as soggy. No, but like, like her personality, she's a bit she's a bit dreary, I guess. Okay. The hen, I'm not really sure about. She's plucky and dreary, I don't know. I'll tell what you want my students, I'm like, how could we find this out? And they would say, search it up! <laughs> what is a person if they are described as a wet hen... Here we go. First result refers to Pratchett. <laughs> you, what is a wet hen you get from English language usage? English.stackexchange.com? I don't know. But the first result, which looks like fancy Google answers. When questioned about the phrase, Terry explained that it's perfectly good British slang. A wet hen is a bedraggled, <laughs> sad, and useless person. Probably not as useless as a big girl's blouse, though, and better off than a lame duck. Also showing me a picture of a wet hen. I mean, that's, that's a bit regret-like. That fits. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, similarly, in her analysis of the witches in the Guilty of Literature collection, Karen Sayer notes that the witches' craft in Pratchett's books is embedded within domesticity, with their cottages representing them as maiden, mother, and crone, which might make Pratchett something of an essentialist, pointing out his frequent focus on their physical appearance. So, it's just someone else noticing this trend there as well. Though I wonder how much of that is, like, because this is a book, right? It's the fantasy world, it's like the outward appearance representing the trope, like they're meant to be stereotypes, he's playing with that, so... Yeah. He has to start with the stereotype in order to subvert it. And then he subverts it, but then he puts it back how it was, so... Yeah. I don't think it'd be too much, except one of the things I said that I didn't like was all the fat jokes, and specifically the amount of them in this book. And as Anderson also observes, Pratchett seems to spend an inordinate amount of time reminding us that Agnes is overweight, uh, which, yes, is something I took issue with as well. However, in her 2018 book, Pratchett's Women, which we talked about before in uh, with regards to equal rights, Tasmanian writer Tansy Rayner Roberts says that, although Masquerade makes her cranky that McGrath's marriage has pushed her out of the narrative of the Lankra witches, it's hard not to be delighted about the arrival of Agnes, who she calls one of Pratchett's most interesting and nuanced portrayals of a younger female protagonist. And Roberts defends Pratchett's fat shaming, claiming that even when fat jokes are flying around, Agnes herself is never treated like a joke, which she says is an incredibly rare thing in fantasy fiction where fat women are rarely seen unless they are villains, motherly matrons, or jolly service industry professionals, which are all of Pratchett's other examples of overweight characters. Um, and young fat women don't exist at all in, in fantasy novels. Mm. Yeah, because Ag- was Agnes overweight in Lords and Ladies, which she described as... Yeah, it was, she was big. Because I was, I was going to say, was she invented, like, for this, because the, there's the tie into the opera, right? She's the fat lady who sings at the end of the book. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's adopting that previously. Hmm, interesting. And while Roberts states that although she has a soft spot for the line about how the ballerinas are crazed with hunger, she is uncomfortable with the characterization of thin girls in Masquerade, saying that it would be nice to have a book that deals positively with fat female characters without judging and deriding thin women as well. Uh, Nevertheless, Roberts concludes that she is impressed once again to see a story this complex about the iterations of women told by a male author, saying that Agnes might be the one who is blessed with a quote, good personality, but of the two, Christine is the only one who behaves like a nice person. Of course, Christine can afford to be nice because everything she ever wants falls into her lap see nuance agnes is nice well she's she has perdita her 
inner monologue, uh, who does become an actual fully-fledged character in Carpet Jungle, so we will revisit her in more detail there, but is, like, she's always judging people, right? She's always criticizing them. Mm. So she's meant, she's playing the role of the outwardly nice person, but inside she is the bitchy thin woman, I guess. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I don't know if I fully buy it. I think that's wh- where she's criticizing the nuance. I think that's sort of maybe oversimplifying it. I don't know. Is it nuance? <laughs> I think she's saying that Agnes and Christine are both flawed. Yeah. Christine sucks and Agnes is good. Like, they're both... But, I mean, I don't think Pratchett's doing a positive portrayal of of Christine. Like, we're meant to side with Agnes on this one, right? I think so, yes. And just to drive it all home, when Agnes, like, becomes, like, her fully realized self at the end, when she returns to Lankra to become a witch and gives up her dreams... The first thing Granny does is compliment her on having lost some weight. So there is some implication there in that self-realization is associated with weight and conventional attractiveness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this this ties in with another thing that I wasn't really happy about um, in Masquerade is that it said in the book that Granny at least respected anyone's right to recreate themselves. She does not. Yeah. I mean, isn't the whole point that... Um, she doesn't like McGrath reinventing herself. She doesn't like Agnes going off to be an opera thing. She has to become the witch that Granny wants her to be. She doesn't want Esk to do... Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's... That's some bullshit. Not aligning with the, the characterization of Granny so far. She wants people to fit into how she wants them to be. Although the, the L-Space annotators are... Uh, in response to this quote, say, uh, as does Terry himself, respect people's rights to recreate themselves, pointing to an annotation of Pratchett's previous musical novel, Soul Music, which introduces Death's granddaughter, Susan Stowe-Hellett, whose name Pratchett explains came from a phenomenon he had noticed on signing tours of girls somewhere between the age of 10 and 18 with names like Susan or Nicola metamorphizing into girls with names like Susie, 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 Susie. (laughs) These are all spelt different ways. You got Susie, Suxie, spelt like Susie and the Banshees, Susie with a T, Zuzi with a Z, and Nikki, Nikki, Nikki. And Nikki. This doesn't work in audio. (laughs) Uh, But different, different varied spellings of the name. And he says, this is about the same time period as boys with names like Adrian and Robert become boys with names like Crash and Frab. How about Frab? <laughs> I've not met a Frab myself. <laughs> no, I don't even think I've met a Crash. <laughs> Uh, but this is fine by me, says Pratchett. I merely chronicle the observation. I've always had a soft spot for people who want to redesign their souls. Which leads us to, to Perdita, who we already sort of brought up. Yeah, so that's that's the introductory discussion of the triple goddess there. And we will revisit that and see how those tropes end up resolving in Carpa Jugulum next episode. But on, on the theme of, I guess, reinvention or identity and the per- Perdita specifically, we are going to talk about uh, the Phantom of the Opera, which... Masquerade is a parody of, in case you weren't aware. But um, there's a number of other influences going on in this, and one of them is Singing in the Rain. Uh, have you seen this, Ellis? Are you aware of the plot of Singing in the Rain? They're Singing in the Rain? Right, that's what I thought as well. When <laughs> I watched this film this afternoon, uh, while I was putting the, the final touches on this outline, Singing in the Rain's pretty good. It's pretty funny. It's very campy. Um, but it is about the invention of films with sound. Okay. And the, the I'll show you a scene. Okay. It's also, um, it's it's singing in the rain rather than singing. Its official title is singing with an apostrophe, which I thought was pretty offside Annoying. for a classic 1950s um, <laughs> film. Yeah. So 
The premise of the film is, yes, someone invents the technology to able to add, add um, sound to films. And it's about how the studio executives and actors and every, everyone react to that, right? And I'll get to its significance in connection to Masquerade in a second. But I should have watched this section from early in the film. So there's a theater full of people and they have just watched a silent film they all enjoyed. And the stars of the film are going to come out and make a presentation at the end. Yeah, so the film they've just watched is silent. This is about 12 minutes into the film for people playing along at home. Gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're pretty darn thrilled at your response to the Royal Rascal. We had fun making it, and we hope you had fun seeing it tonight. We screen actors are much good at speaking in public, so we'll just act out our thanks. Diggity kids, it's a smash, eh, Mr. Simpson? Don, Lena, you were gorgeous. Yeah, Lena, you look pretty good for a girl. For heaven's sake, what's the big idea? Can't a girl get a word in edgewise? After all, they're my public, too. Lena, the publicity department, Rod here, thought it would be much better if Don made all the speeches for the team. Why? Lena, you're a beautiful woman. Audiences think you've got a voice to match. The studio's got to keep their stars from looking ridiculous at any cost. No one's got that much money. What's wrong with the way I talk? What's the big idea? Am I dumb or something? Oofed. So that is the big reveal of, of the premise of the film, is what happens when you're a movie star with a shitty voice and suddenly you have to speak on screen. It is funny because now we're podcasting and it's entire reliant on our voices. Yeah, gone the other way. Conveniently, though, we are both drop-dead gorgeous. We are. I'm very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this is... In terms of Masquerade, this movie then, um, the premise is that they find another girl um, who has a nice voice, who dubs all her lines over the film. Right. So Masquerade is a parody and that she is Christine. I thought they were just being dicks to Agnes, but it's both. So it's about the the changing of the guard in in stars and things. But then, like, Masquerade's a reverse thing where they're trying, it's like with opera, you normally have the... The, the fat lady who isn't conventionally attractive singing and they're trying to bring in, no, now we need attractive starlets to be in these films. Or well, I'm saying films because I'm alluding to like musicals in the real world. So sort of the reverse of Singing in the Raid. As we only just mentioned, uh, this is a masquerade as a parody of The Phantom of the Opera. And I think one of its weaknesses is it's a incredibly straight parody of Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Even more so than Weird Sisters is of Masquerade. Like, it, the plot beats are pretty one-for-one one with the Phantom of the Opera. Um, but there are a lot of these other illusions, like um, that going on. Because Phantom of the Opera, you have the... It's like the opposite again. As Dorothy Anderson, this is a different Anderson with an E rather than O, points out in their um, 2006 thesis, Bewitching Writing. Norwegian playwright Ludwig Holberg wrote a comedy called Masquerade, spelt with a C rather than a Q or a K, in 1724, which the Danish composer Carl Nielsen and writer Wilhelm Anderson adapted into a comedic opera called Masquerade, spelt with a K, as Pratchett spells it, in 1906. Fan of the Opera comes out in uh, 1909, 1910 when it's serialized and then novelized, so just before Fan of the Opera, which apparently continues to be performed at the Royal Opera in Copenhagen. Apparently this is a pretty famous opera in, I guess, Europe and, and Denmark specifically. It's about some lovers who meet at a masquerade and they don't know each other's identity, so it's sort of like a Cinderella thing. Cinderella, Romeo and Juliet, I guess. But Anderson says both the play and the opera deal thematically with the change of traditions when something new evolves in society and the conflict between generations and their different viewpoints, which isn't a very helpful summary, right? very broad. <laughs> 
But again, seems to be touching on the same things as Singing in the Rain, as Phantom of the Opera, as Masquerade. So I think that's another influence maybe woven in there that I don't know about. Mm. But yes, I don't know enough to talk about that because I didn't go and read or watch a Danish opera that I only found out about yesterday. If anyone does, has seen that opera, knows about it, wants to write in and explain if there's any allusions because I haven't found anyone else mention this connection. But I, I feel like this is something Pratchett would have known about if he's researching operas. Apparently this is a pretty famous one. Um, so if he's stealing its title. Yes, and this is this is where you get to jump in because in there are article Believing is Seeing from the Guilty of Literature collection, James Brown, who I assume is not the sole singer, they... <laughs> Uh, compares Masquerade to Ben Johnson's 1610 play The Alchemist um, since Agnes, the character who exposes the fraud and stands up for truth, in a sense emerges as the most gullible and least satisfied character of the lot. Now we spoke about Ben Johnson in our um, Sandman Neil Gaiman bonus podcast that you can get by signing up at uh, patreon.com slash Pod. but I don't know anything about this play but Alice, you do. <laughs> no, no, this is the problem. I started oh. reading it this morning. <laughs> right, so you haven't got to the end. <laughs> and this was when I was wanting to read while I was meant to be reading Masquerade. So watch this space. I'll record something and tuck it in. In the introduction to the same collection, David Langford also points out a connection to Peter Schaeffer's 1978 play Armadeus, which is about the 18th century Italian composer Antonio Soleri, who Mozart accused of poisoning him. <laughs> and Soleri means salt cellar. So that's why we have, um, was it Salzala is the villain in the book in Masquerade? Oh, uh, yeah. I, originally, my note with this is this a meaningless illusion, but no, this is telling you he is the bad guy. Like, if you know the history of opera, you know that the guy who shares the name of the guy who poisoned Mozart yep. is the evil ghost. Another illusion that I was very excited to have found for myself is the movie Scream. Oh, yeah. Have you seen Scream? No. <laughs> Right, so Scream, well, you know the, like, ghost face guy from yeah. Scream, yeah? Yeah. Okay, Scream is a, it's the meta slasher. Hmm. It is the slasher about slashers. The premise of it is all the characters in the film are big um, slasher fans. They know the rules of slasher films, and they find themselves in one, and they start dissecting what should happen and what shouldn't based on the movies they've watched. And then it turns out the killers, because there's two of them, that's the big twist of Scream. They can't work out who the killers are. There's a second killer, right? That's the same twist in Masquerade. Also, the, the Scream killer is called Ghostface. <laughs> so Ghost, Masquerade, Ghost, Ghostface, Meta Slasher, all this. I'm like, oh my god, this is Scream. Pratchett's doing Scream. And I was really excited about this. So I found out that Scream came out a year after Masquerade. So Scream's doing Pratchett. Scream's doing Pratchett. There you go. So I don't, I think this is complete coincidence because Scream would have been in production earlier. Pratchett's writing his book, they're in completely different things. But there's like some kind of, maybe just we've hit that point of postmodernism mm. that like something's going on here. That both of these things essentially arrived at the same point with the same plot details and maybe that has something to do with the phantom of the opera as a horror influence mm. which we'll talk about more later but maybe they're drawing from something going on there i don't know but i was really excited about that and i was like oh no there's no connection it's just like pure coincidence but what a coincidence and what a smart guy to have pointed that out yes yes <laughs> <laughs> so smart although um perhaps more fittingly um, I'm wondering because in, in preparation for this, uh, like a couple of weeks ago, uh, Maddie and I did watch the, the Scream movies. The first two, at least. The first one, still really great. The second one, no good. <laughs> um, but then that led us. We watched, I, I'm ashamed to admit, we did also watch the first three scary movie movies. Are you familiar with these? Josh, have we? Have you not figured out I just can't do any form of scary film and just will not? If it's called scary movie, I know it's a parody, but it's still scary to me. <laughs> The scary movie films were a big deal when I was like 13. They were what the older kids were into when I was in school because you're older than me. These movies are horrible. Checks out. They are, are incredibly homophobic. It was right at that moment, wasn't it? Yeah, it okay. was. 
Um, the second one is maybe the worst film I've ever seen. Mm. Yes, we, we watched the, the scary movie films, which was a weird premise I was pointing out because, as I just explained to you, Scream is already commenting, it is already a parody of slasher films. Because the first scary movie is pretty much a direct parody of Scream. So it's already a parody of a postmodern deconstruction. So, simulacra? Yeah, we're getting, we're getting somewhere in there. Because um, Scream is, it's not funny, but it, it's very campy. Okay. It's very cheesy. It's very campy. So it doesn't really work. But um, at the the twist at the end of the first scary movie is a, it is also a parody of the Usual Suspects. Do you, do you do the Usual Suspects? Yeah, I know Usual Suspects. Yeah. So the end of um, Scary Movie One is there's a character who's a parody of of one of the characters in Scream whose name's Doofy, who is played as a um, how do we put this uh, developmentally in- intellect challenged dude mm-hmm. through the whole movie. He has a limp, he's all hunching and, and he's, and everyone thinks he's, oh, doofy, you're an idiot. And then the end, he turns out to be the real killer and he does the walk down the street and starts walking straight and gets in the car and drives off like usual suspects, which is sort of what happens in Masquerade with Walter Plinch. Yeah. Right. So all of this is to say Pratchett not only predicted Scream, but predicted Scary Movie. <laughs> You heard the man's it here a genius? first, folks. <laughs> hmm. Postmodernism. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, it's kind of weird to call the scary movie films postmodernism. But it's true, right? Hmm. It's the dark side. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so of course, the, the major influence of Masquerade is The Phantom of the Opera, which, as we mentioned before, was first published as a serial in the French newspaper, La Gualeos. Um, I don't know how to say that. La Galo? Galois? La Galois. I think that's close. That was good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was published in a French newspaper in 1909, and then as a novel in 1910, and translated into English a year later in 1911. Part of the reason there was a delay with this as well, as I said, probably to get the most out of Masquerade, you, you probably want to read um, Fan of the Opera, which I also thought would be interesting to you for dark hero reasons. So you read The Phantom of the Opera, how do you feel about The Phantom of the Opera else? I didn't like it very much. I don't think it's a great book. It's no. not a great book at all. And obviously the interest to me is the Dark Hero stuff. And even though there are these illusions, and I think, as you've pointed out, there's something there with the vampire, I didn't think there were any sort of significant meaningful connections. Like if I'm going to write this book in a few years on like the development of different Dark Heroes, and I'm, I was thinking about where it would fit and what I would say about it, and it would fit into the gothic villain and like development yes. of the gothic villain in the new... Uh, um, gothic revival but yeah not very interesting i i wasn't blown away no it's i don't think it's a very well like written book Mm. i think there's some there's some cool stuff in it but it's it's like pretty cliche as well it's like not being translated might be a problem as well i feel like we might have lost quite a bit maybe and i think that's why it doesn't come up for me in like all of my reading on dark heroes and the history of dark heroes it's obviously very english centric anglophone centric <laughs> um and it's french so we don't I, obviously we did goethe which is germany but yeah he doesn't come up i was gonna say i don't think phantom of the opera is this influential thing like i don't think it's establishing anything i think where mm. it's interesting it is maybe the culmination like it's yeah. the solidify not even solidifying but it is like the the saturation the what's the word when like you go to all the the bakeries and they all have the same frozen muffins see i think that happens in the byronic era right yeah okay. that's my whole argument um, <laughs> we are going to go into the the gothic villain stuff earlier but there's something going on in here i think with the phantom of the opera as a reflection of these tropes the development of the tropes rather than establishing them as far as like within the phantom of the opera itself i thought it might be interesting to you because the book itself literally mm. like literalizes the 
progression from the demonic hubristic Faust to the romantic Don. It's Don John, right? The tradition they're engaging with is the Don John tradition. Byron changes it and does Don Juan. Right, because in the in the um one of the Phantom of the Opera movies, I think it's the Hammer Horror one. They well, maybe it's the nineteen eighty nine one. They say like Don Juan. They say it really weird. Well, technically, I think it is meant to be Juan because of like the meter of his poetry. But just call it Juan and be done with it, everyone. Don Juan. Don Juan. Don Giovanni. But yeah, so so for people not familiar with with the Phantom of the Opera, they're performing Faust mm. is the play they're performing, and the Phantom wants to fuck with their Faust performance and then ultimately replace it with his own play, which is called Don Juan Triumphant. <laughs> which talking about the development of the Byronic hero and the Dark Hero and everything, like that starts with Faust and Marlowe and everything, and and um and and uh, Mar- uh, Milton, but Faust. And then goes through Byron, who writes Don Juan, embedding that progression within the narrative. Oh, I see. You're embedding it in the narrative, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Um, yeah. Yes. the The start of of what the, what, the, what the Phantom, what the dark Gothic villain guy wants, hmm. is to usurp or supplant a depiction of a greedy, satanic. Faustian figure with a sexy dude with a sexy romantic figure. My issue then is like Don John or Don Juan Byron's story, mm-hmm. which I have now read. There's not any of this Mephistophelian Faustian stuff in it. He's just a sexy dude getting into trouble, being sold as a slave, seducing some ladies. So I see, like that's what he wants. It's just that actual Don John doesn't Don Juan doesn't supplant the Faustian villain. Instead, Byron has all these other um, Byronic heroes that I think he. Right, but Byron turns the dark hero from a satanic figure into, into a, a sexy romantic hero. one. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's complicated. But I don't think LaRoe's going, yes, making a meta-commentary on mm. Byronic things. I think he's just gone, yeah, Faust and, and Don Juan. But he's doing that because that's what Byron's done to the culture. Yes. And then Phantom of the Opera reflects that culture. So we're getting a, a record of that progression. Yeah. Yes, that is my argument in my thesis. <laughs> Um, well, Gaston LaRoe did it, so mm, back to the drawing board. Not very well, though. Hmm, he reflected it. <laughs> he reflected it. He didn't do it. It only influenced yeah. cult- culture for the next hundred years. <laughs> very good. <laughs> I still reckon, yeah, Byron is so interesting because he's with us everywhere. Never never alone. Um, hmm. All right, we'll come back to this, but that that's my basic, like, so I think that's there. But as many critics have also pointed out, The Phantom is also a Faustian story, with Christine mm-hmm. playing Faust to the Phantom's Mephistopheles, who she summons as the Angel of Music, seeking the sacred fire of inspiration. I thought what was interesting with Christine, maybe I missed something, but it wasn't like she wanted anything. He was just trying <laughs> to seduce her, so it's more satanic than Faust. But even then, Eve does want... Knowledge, you know, pride, something. Well, Christine does want to be a successful singer. Yeah. She was already pretty good, though, right? Well, she wants to be in in the family opera. She wants to be. She wants to be the superstar. She wants to replace the woman who is already the megastar. Hmm. It just seemed like a big <laughs> jump down from. Can I have all the knowledge in the universe, please? <laughs> to, <laughs> to like, yes. I'd like to be the star of the show. <laughs> well, I mean, by the by the Adam and Eve thing, she's already fallen. She already has all the knowledge of the universe, and now she wants fame, baby. Maybe, yeah. Postmodernism. Mm. Mm. It's 1910, Josh. <laughs> yeah, so mod- modernism. modernism. Um, yeah, no, that's my exact note, is that she doesn't summon him like Faust does. He appears to her and offers her, oh. hey, I can teach you how to sing. And I've written that is a satanic temptation rather than a Faustian bargain there. Yes. And this is my thing, right? 
Satan sneaks in. We don't, we think, oh, it's Faust or, oh, it's Byron, but actually it is the satanic tradition and it's everywhere and nobody pays any attention to it. Yeah, well, I mean, Faust is, is Satan, right? That's that's the other well, thing. It's anything Faustian has an element of Satan in it. I know they're not one-to-one when you. I say that. That is a generalization <laughs> yep. of me mm-hmm. saying but you- <laughs> Faust is playing with Satan. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's just anathema to me because I'm like, but there are so many different Satans <laughs> and they're catalogued in my brain. this is not like Satan is literally Prometheus. No. I might make that argument, but Faust is a, a version of the satanic story. Or, or Mephistopheles is, yeah, he's yes, a version. Yeah. But even then he's taking Faust's soul back to say, anyway, it's fine. <laughs> you join me on my podcast where we go into the background of all of this in a couple of weeks. Are you doing a Faust one? Well, we've got to do Manfred, so we'll touch on Faust through Goethe, and then we'll get, keep going backwards. I'm not doing them in order. It's great. I'm having a good time. <laughs> yeah, you do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so just, just finishing up on that satanic theme as well, in a rather brilliant undergraduate thesis, right? Undergraduate, so yeah. I guess the equivalent of honours fast, but not a master's or anything, just undergraduate thesis from earlier this year on the Phantom of the Opera and Gothic Space, Zeta Ann Reno also argues that... Since the underground regions of the Opera House are frequently described as a hellish landscape, fit only for Satan, ghosts, and the likes of Eric, that's the name of the fandom in the Phantom of the Opera, there is a thing I realise here where, like, you know, you call, you don't say Frankenstein's monster, you say Frankenstein's creature, because you're meant to be neutral rather than calling him monstrous. And so I think there's a thing with Phantom of the Opera scholarship where you, you're meant to call him Eric, mm. which is his neutral name, rather than calling him the Phantom, which... Or ghost. I'm just calling him the Phantom so that, you know, I'm referring to the Phantom of the Opera. But fit only for Satan, ghosts, and the likes of Eric by specifically calling the underground lair a retreat on more than one occasion, which is a comparison that likens the home and the domestic with hell. (laughs) I just thought, like, throughout, I picked up on, you know, there's this hellscape underneath. Yes, Faust bringing the thing back. Yeah, whatever. I don't know about domestic home. What? Yeah, I think the the hinging that on retreat is something there, but he does make a home out of it, right? And the same with with Walter in... Well, that's that's the thing. That's what she's saying, Mm. is that Walter and the Phantom... Walter in Masquerade and Eric in The Phantom of the Opera are not welcome in the opera house, so they go underneath where they make their own kingdom, right? Better to reign in hell, better to reign in the catacombs. <laughs> make under make opera a heaven house. of hell a hell of heaven. Right. Make a home of the All right. secret I mean, yes. she could take that a little further. But yes, does she go on and talk about it? Like I said, this is an undergraduate thesis, and this is the best piece of scholarship I read on The Phantom of the Opera. I think it's brilliant. Huh. I'm also, I'm cautious to quote from this because maybe she's just pulling it from somewhere else and maybe this is a shallow reading and I'm just finding it more accessible mm. but I don't know there was I, I will send you this thing because I think there's some stuff in there like she talks about these connections to Faust and the gothic stuff it might be interesting I, I thought it was great okay. moving from undergraduate thesis to um literary titans um during an analysis of stephen king's misery from 1987 that's the book not the analysis I'm not sure what year the analysis is uh margaret atwood oh. now also compares King's version of the Sultan's Maze motif, which I had to go through her other works and find is the motif of a woman imprisoned in a, lab- a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Margaret Atwood uh, compares King's use of the Sultan's Maze motif, uh, which is used, she says, among other places in The Phantom of the Opera, in which the patron of a work of art wishes to murder its maker so only he will possess its secrets. Have you read Misery? Are you, no, do you do Stephen King? I haven't. Uh, Misery might be my favourite sting- uh, Stephen King book. I think, yeah. um, but it is about Stephen King had a had a ax- car accident or something. 
that he had to recover from that was a big thing in his career that like he wasn't going to write and, he, and then he had a crash and realized like oh what if i never finish all these books and came back and finished off his series and everything but he wrote a book called misery which is about a writer because all of Stephen King's protagonist, sorry, himself, who is in a car crash and then is rescued by someone who turns out to be a big fan of his work. Um, but he hasn't, or actually in, in Misery, he's finished the series, but he killed off the main character. And then she's like, no, that's no good. I'm keeping you hostage until you rewrite this last book to suit my, like, fan canon. It's really good. I think it might be my favorite Stephen King film and book, but which is to say that the Phantom of the Opera is that sort of thing. But uh, Margaret Atwood says... Because the point I'm actually trying to get to about Margaret Atwood is um, that she also compares the Phantom's underground lair uh, to the descent into hell in Virgil's Aeneid. 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 I always struggle with that one. And the not unrelated Grimm's fairy tale, the 12 dancing princesses, or the worn out dancing shoes, wherein 12 princesses sink into the ground each night and cross a subterranean lake to a place where they dance with 12 princes until their shoes collapse. Get better shoes. Well, she's acknowledging the the descent into hell was why I wanted to jump to that quote. It's funny that she picks those two out and not the other hundreds of representations of descents into hell. Right, I would have gone with Dante. Hmm? Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is the thing with with its word association or text association. She just jumps from one thing to one thing. So all that, she goes, she's talking about misery. And she goes, that's like Phantom of the Opera, which is like the hell, which is like the Aeneid, which is like this Grimm's fairy tale. And doesn't make a point about any of them. Just goes, ah! Yep. You're like, what was that? So yes, we'll come back to Abbott because she does some more crazy stuff uh, later. But in terms of Phantom of the Opera, uh, yes, another obvious influence or precursor to the Phantom of the Opera is Victor Hugo's 1833 novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is perhaps also alluded to in Masquerade via Walter Plinge, right? He's the mm. humbled service person. He, he's not a hunchback, but he's sort of like scrunched. He's a scrunchback. <laughs> he's got bad posture. Have you have you read that book? No, I've seen the film. Yeah, the, the Disney one? Yeah. <laughs> That's good, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, have, have you been to Notre Dame? I, I was going to read it. I wanted to buy a copy of Notre Dame from Notre Dame and read it, and then I didn't because it's very long. I've been before boring. and after the fire. <laughs> oh, you went after the fire? Yeah, and before. Before the fire. I am amazed that not a single notable black metal band has used that as an album cover. <laughs> The Burning Notre Dame, it's great. I, I, I know, like, some underground bands would have used it, but I am amazed that I have not seen that just everywhere. All death metal covers for the next, like, 100 years, every day, 100 years, Notre Dame burning. Notre Dame's pretty cool, right? Yeah, I like Notre Dame. Maddie dragged me to, like, a million churches when we went to Europe. In Europe, the churches do get old. <laughs> you know, obviously there's some good ones, but let's, like, let's hit the, you know, the highlights rather than just we're going to visit every fucking church. And I was, I was going to say Notre Dame is by far the best one, but actually Clone Dome is pretty sick. York Minster is my favourite. There's one in the middle of, um, it's just in the middle of Florence. There's just a big fuck-off church. Yes. That one's pretty sick. I didn't go inside that one, though. But in terms of, um, like, goth shit, Notre Dame. Yeah, pretty wicked. banging. Like, the back of it looks cool, or used to. Yeah, used to. Uh, so there's Hunchback of Notre Dame. I think there's something there. I wanted to be able to say more about it. I was going to read um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, because that is a gap in my literary thing, but I just read all the vampire books instead. Guess it's there. But it's like the same thing, right? you got a disfigured guy running around in a castle. I guess the difference is that he doesn't manipulate the lady into loving him. She just loves him for who she is. I want to say that, but I don't. I don't know because I haven't read it. You've seen the movie. Yeah, but we went through how Disney fucked up that You're shit. right, yeah. We did like three parts on that. <laughs> <laughs> mm. The other thing about Phantom of the Opera is he's Frankenstein's creature dressed up as Dracula. Yeah, baby. 
<laughs> right? He's like, I'm ugly and I can't be in society and I'm going to wear a cloak and run around and kidnap bucks and wenches. It's funny because, like, um, going back through Frankenstein, the, I can't say this word, the physiognomy, like the, yep. the like your face tells people who you are and you can make judgments about the, the face. Yeah, brain yeah, and everything. And, yeah. like, you know, Frankenstein's creature is, like, all ugly and disgusting and then the joke, well, not the joke, the whole point is that he's actually quite a nice person until society corrupts but him. also he's a mass murderer. That comes later. You know, he collects firewood first. He's nice. He does murder the first child he meets. Who? William. Oh, no, that's after the fact. He's been living with the DeLaceys for months before that. Yeah, but he's never met a child. Okay, sure. After he's become corrupted, the first person he meets is a child. I don't know if you get one rejection gives you a free murder. Mm, I don't know. (laughs) What I'm saying is, like, he's nice, then he's corrupted by society, and Shelley doesn't do things, like, slowly. She just, like, draws a line. All right, now you're evil and you're killing children, okay? there's Which, honestly, Dracula could have used some of that pacing. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting because, like, all the evolutionary psychology stuff, it kind of lines up in its craziness because it's like physiognomy is crazy, and then evolutionary psychology has these weird theories about, you know, you're like men with big beards or whatever because they're sexy, and it's like, no, what? Oh, I just had a trim. (laughs) It's just funny how the crazy intersects in that one. And they're both trying to say that, like, oh, ugly people are, like, evil or unlikable or outcasts of society. And actually, they're quite nice. Oh, I just got nothing to add because as a certified stub muffin, I've never had this problem. So, (laughs) unrelatable. (laughs) In their 2008 book, Secrets of the Wee Free Men and Discworld, Carrie Pickenham. That's a name with two Y's and two K's wow. back to back. Um, and Linda Washington suggests fan of the opera also may have been inspired by George de Maria's 1894 novel Trilby, which is about a tone-deaf young woman who can't sing but who is hypnotized into doing so um, by the musician and mesmerist Svengali. Svengali! you know this one? No. No, I, I actually have read a bit of Trilby because it came up because um, de Maria wrote another book called The Martian, which is about a Martian who comes to Earth and is sort of amazed at the, um, I guess, immorality of mankind and is he is the pure person who comes and teaches us how to be better people it's one of those stories um, but of course he is a vegetarian and this um, book is mentioned in the same vegetarian journal that vegetarians talk about how great H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds is so mm. that is how I came across Trilby um, and our, our last possible uh, inspiration for the uh, fan of the opera or textual inspiration um, is fairy tale scholar Maria Tata who we talked about in um, some of the Witches Abroad episodes also reads fan of the opera as a bluebeard story due to its focus on compulsive female curiosity and the controlling male figure also Eve but yeah okay well we, we said bluebeard is Eve right yeah I mean, this is specifically a, a man locking a lady up in a, you know, a tower, a labyrinth. A, <sighs> she does, he doesn't say, don't check this thing. He says, don't take off my, my mask is the, mm. the thing there. The other major influence on uh, LaRose Phantom of the Opera is the gothic architecture of the opera houses themselves. Mm. LaRose Phantom was primarily inspired by uh, the 1896 chandelier crash that killed a concierge in an opera house that was based on a real event. Um, so in her thesis, Reno illustrates how early opera houses began to ideologically influence their audiences, pointing to the Italian opera house Titano alla Scala. Titro alla Scala. Thank you, Alice. Uh, which was rebuilt in 1776 after being destroyed in a fire, with funding being provided solely by the nobility that frequented the theatre before it burnt down, meaning they could pretty much do what they wanted in the opera house after it rebuilt, right? They bought the right to mm. use the opera house at their whim, which then led to, you know, upper-class control of opera. Mm-hmm. As the influential opera critic Carol Chana Lin explains, the boxes became their private salons. Each box was decorated differently according to the owner's 
tastes, with silk, tapestry, or scenes from favourite operas covering the walls, and frescoes, mirrors, or carved wood which adorn the ceilings, and that the boxes could be closed off, allowing intimacies in the box, which gave rise to gossip of every type. <laughs> so they are, they're banging in the, in the boxes, but they're essentially using the opera house as their, you know, private playhouse. It's become, yeah, yeah. less about opera itself, and it's about this upper class getaway, I guess. Mm. Um, and Rena argues that these boxes resembled miniature homes, visible but unattainable by the rest of the audience, and thereby reiterating the nobility's position at the top of society. The nobles' display of their wealth and power through the boxes became as much a production as the plays themselves, with the attendance of the Archduke Ferdinand and Archduchess Maria Ricarda Beatrice d'Este. Uh, at the inaugural performance at, at this newly rebuilt opera house, they were on the title page of the opera's program, larger than its title, which didn't feature either of the composer's name nor the singer's. <laughs> so we're getting this replacement of art by celebrity, mm. which I think is another thing that Pratchett's engaging with in Masquerade. Yeah. Right? This is why they want Christine in there rather than Agnes. It's no longer about talent. It's about star quality, as they call it. Mm-hmm. The opera houses and the divided space within, therefore, became a symbol of a sophisticated and cultural upper class, which was threatened by the unwelcome lower class phantom in LaRoe's novel. Mm. I mean, we're seeing that Phantom of the Opera was already a comment about class politics, but I think Masquerade is commenting more on, on this, this class divide rather than opera itself. Because, yeah, Masquerade is about opera, but it's also a parody of Fan of the Opera, which, despite its title, was not an opera, nor has it ever technically been an opera. Of note, anyway. This is kind of a simulacra thing where people who think of opera these days, probably the first thing they go to is Fan of the Opera, not an opera. He's just at the opera and he's a phantom. He doesn't do opera. But yes, it's misleading. Well, it is, of course, the basis for the Andrew Lloyd Webber um, musical Fan of the Opera from 1986, which was the highest grossing musical of all time, having earned nearly three times more than than the then most lucrative film, which was James Cameron's Titanic. Uh, this is in the late 90s when, when Pratchett wrote Masquerade. Or actually, that's before Titanic. But in the 90s, right? So it's, it, until Avatar came along, it had earned three times as much as the most successful film. Um, although it was overtaken in 2014 by The Lion King. Um, and I believe it's now third behind The Lion King and Wicked. Hmm. But that's because these plays, they go on for like... I wonder where Hamilton's at there. Hmm. Well, that's the other reason. The reason why it took them so long to make a movie of um, Weber's Phantom of the Opera, right? The movie comes out in 2004, 10 years after Masquerade and 20 years almost after the show debuted, is that they don't want people to be able to go see the movie. They want them to keep coming to the play. So that's why there is no Hamilton movie. There is no Wicked movie. Well, there's a Hamilton movie in the works, but you're right. They've pushed it. Yeah. They've done In the Heights first. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So this is still running in New York where it's become a Broadway institution and shows no signs of closing. And um, as I was writing all of this, when I was first putting it together, I got an email saying, do you want tickets to Fan of the Opera opening in Melbourne? <laughs> Which has been postponed into 2022. But yeah, this is this thing is still coming. People are still into Fan of the Opera. Before all of this, I'm not really sure why Pratchett was inspired to write about the Fan of the Opera in 1995 or the mid-90s specifically. Because 1986, after the play came out, right? You'd want to write something then. 2004 is when the film comes out. I don't know what's happening between those two points. Maybe he didn't see it for five years or ten years or... Yeah, I mean we're saying this was inspired by he he went to the opera. He probably went to see Phantom of the Opera and it's just strange that this happens at, at this point rather than in response to either of those things. It's Pratchett, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're saying Phantom of the Opera is not an opera, but as Weber himself said in a 1988 Time magazine feature, what do we mean by opera anyway? And he argued that there's no difference today between opera and serious musical theatre, that these are terms that divide class, their quantitative I don't know. I thought opera was a particular type of singing that had been gentrified a little bit, but was still very difficult to do. I guess normal singing is difficult to do well. I wouldn't know. But it's like high and low literature, 
quiet mainstream literature, literature, and genre literature, they're both words in books with stories and plots, but one is serious art. Right. So I'm not, I'm not sure if Pratchett ever really engages with this high and low culture thing in, in Masquerade, because he's sort of post the Phantom of the Opera musical, like there's already been that collapse, he is just treating them mm. as the same thing. But I guess like, inherently in writing a accessible, popular fantasy novel, satirical, humorous fantasy novel about the pretensions of opera, he's like acting that collapse. And he's saying that your sophisticated culture is nothing but a bunch of silly superstitions. Yeah. And, and he's saying it's full of fantasy. Yeah. That you people are deluded that you believe in all these superstitions like break a leg. The so show it's must like Macbeth, on. really. <laughs> yes. Which is another way that is a rehash of Weird Sisters, but- Again, I think that there's something going on in this book and I don't know. It's like he was trying to do, yeah, lots of these little things, but he never quite brought it to a head in a very, like, noticeable way, I guess. Like, if you're if you're just me reading the book and not analysing it for weeks and reading it three times as you have, it's just like, what mm-hmm. did I just read? Yes. So in his 2009 article, What Do We Mean by Opera Anyway?, which is named after Weber's quote, David Chandler characterizes Weber's Phantom as a work of popular musical theatre that attempts to be as operatic as possible without, however, repelling an audience who would ordinarily consider the idea of opera intimidating. <laughs> so he's on the cusp, and I, and I did watch I watched the 2004 film, which was garbage, but it is like singing all the time. It is a very operatic musical. It's not like, you know, Grease or something where they break into song occasionally. The whole thing is, is sung. Moreover, as the author of the 2000 book, Getting Opera, a guide for the cultured but confused, Matt Dobkin points out opera has historically been a popular art form that aimed to entertain ordinary people, advising his readers not to be afraid of opera because some force has foolishly built it up as the ultimate in refinement. So this is again the Shakespeare thing. Mm. It used to be a popular thing that was for everyone. It's been canonized as this culture and it's got away from its lower class popular roots and through things like um, the Weber musical and books like Carpa Jugulum, it's being brought back hmm. to the people, so to speak, which is what Widsis is about. But I think that's what's going on in Masquerade that's never quite articulated properly. It's about this class revision. And, and this is parodied directly in Masquerade uh, by audience attendees like the legal clerk Henry uh, Lawsey, yeah. who attends the opera seeking to improve his mind, having bought a book about the opera and read it carefully because he'd heard that it was absolutely unheard of to go to an opera without knowing what it was about and that the chances of finding out why you were actually watching it were remote. And I can actually relate to this, I don't know, because, again, in the same trip where I wanted to buy a copy of um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame while I was at Notre Dame, to give it that sort of Notre dame aura. But we did go, we went to the Globe in London, mm-hmm. so we bought tickets to see what was on when we were there. It was Julius Caesar. So I bought a copy of Julius Caesar from our bookshop, and I, and I read it all before going to see this play, because I wanted to know Julius Caesar so I could understand it before I went. I think that was a mistake with Shakespeare. I actually find the story with Shakespeare comes through way more clearer when you're yep. watching it. <laughs> But I did the same thing. I wanted to go in knowing about the play rather than just experiencing We're also it. academics, so... That's true. This is what I do for fun. Samesies. You also have the new opera house owner um, in Masquerade, the investor Mr. Bucket, which is an allusion to Mrs. Bucket <laughs> from the early 90s British sitcom Keeping Up Appearances, who insists that her name is actually pronounced bouquet due to middle-class pretensions. So again, just, just through that allusion, he's like hinting at this theme. Yeah, the new nouveau riche... Nouveau riche bourgeoisie, yeah. But you, you have to know these things to see what he's getting. Like, I think it is a more subtle book than Weird Sisters, but maybe not as successful mm. in getting its idea across. I'm not sure. Uh, the annotated Pratchett also points out that many people have also spotted the description of Walter Plinge of having a beret, a brown coat, nervousness, being clumsy, um, as being very similar to that of Frank Spencer, who's the lead character in the British television comedy Some Mothers Do Have Them. <laughs> 
and Frank Spencer was played by Michael Crawford, who went on to become truly famous as the original Phantom in the Webber musical. Mm. So I don't think that one's making a point, just a cool little illusion bringing British sitcoms and the Webber musical together. Mm. Mm. So yes, we're not sure why Pratchett was... um, into Phantom of the Opera in the mid-90s, but, like, Phantom of the Opera was a big cultural institution at that point. Although, as Chandler notes, opera attendance in Britain increased by less than 3% during the 1980s. But Chandler argues that the desire to like opera is far stronger than actual opera appreciation. (laughs) And this has led to a great proliferation of what might be termed entrance-level materials, while making comparatively little difference to such advanced forms of opera appreciation, such as actually sitting through one, which I thought was pretty funny. It's like reading Paradise Lost, yeah. <laughs> nice. But people should read Paradise Lost. Absolutely should. Then listen to my podcast on it. But yeah, I, I sort of argue the opposite. Like, if you take the popular view of this of like there is no divide between opera and musicals they are of the same form this is saying that well no opera is more popular now like this data set depends on what you qualify as opera or not if fan of the opera is an opera then audience attendance of opera has increased a billion fold or whatever but it's not an opera only opera people are saying that whereas andrew laws Webb is saying no this is what opera is now this is what it has transformed into they are from the same tradition okay i said there's a t- certain type of singing but then all operas are musicals like you go the yeah. other way with it no it's okay. not that all musical is opera but all operas are musicals so musical attendance increased and then it becomes right. down to a genre thing rather than a type thing i guess okay um because the other thing you have happening in the early 90s is the disney renaissance mm. which we talked about they're all musicals the other thing with the disney renaissance is it's all the guys who do the songs came from musical theater mm. it's the guys who did um who framed roger rabbit and little shop of horrors alan menken and composer howard ashman who did the music for the little mermaid beauty and the beast and aladdin with menken later working on pocahontas the hunchback of notre dame hercules and tangled as well and you have the disney hunchback coming out in 19 19- 96, so one year after mm. Masquerade. There's something going on with a musical theatre revival, if not a opera revival, during the 10 years between Weber's Phantom and Pratchett's Masquerade. But it is not acknowledged as one because of that popular distinction between real opera and, and musicals, I guess. Mm. Also interestingly, as Chandler notes, despite unprecedented popular claim, or perhaps because of it, the development of a significant body of Lloyd Webber criticism has been remarkably slow. And as I was saying at the start, that there's just, there's nothing about Masquerade. It doesn't even have a Google Scholar page. I couldn't find anything about Webber's fan of the opera in terms of academic scholarship. Mm. Like, I think I'm quoting like two or three articles here but you'd think as a it was billed as the most successful entertainment venture in the world that's been ongoing for the last 30 or 40 years i think we're up to now like you'd think there'd be a ton of weber criticism there's just nothing written about it so it's almost like the opera snobbery comes with the academic snobbery i would say that literary scholars probably aren't paying much attention to it because like phantom of the opera itself is like french and then the other stuff's happening kind of in the popular sphere and it's a musical so like the genre does like i wouldn't think of it Mm. it would be something that i'd throw in in the introduction okay i was pretty amazed at how much how little scholarship there was for the lloyd webber musical and and the film and also just the phantom of the opera novel itself given how culturally prevalent they are because whether these are good or relevant or anything like we all know what phantom of the opera is Mm. you just like it's it's so in the culture as as a thing and there's just not much written about the actual texts and, and things themselves it's, it's really interesting i think there's some snobbery in it i just think that some of it maybe isn't like purposeful like i'd just be like oh that's a different genre or that's over there like i'm dealing with the literary and the, yeah so yes to, to summarize all of that what i think masquerade is really about is returning opera and theater to the lower classes via the working class opera ghost of walter plinge which as granny reminds us is just another word for spirit and spirit is just another word for soul that's saying that the the 
working class, the lower class, are the soul of the opera and it belongs to them. Seize the means of production. I think that's kind of what he's saying about <laughs> opera. And also Walter Plinge, who we can see as an analogy for Lloyd Webber, because mm. he's written versions of popular musicals like Webber's Cats and Evita, along oh, with Cats. Miserable Les and, and other ones. But Miserable Les. Yeah, there's a bunch of um, Lloyd Webber musical parodies amongst the ones he's written, and it's sort of saying, no, this is the future of opera's dead and old and silly, and Walter Plinge is going to come along and make it successful. Because mm. uh, there's a complaint about how do you make money out of opera? Well, Andrew Lloyd Webber's made a lot of money, yes. and it seems like Walter Plinge is as well. Not that we ever go back to the opera house in Discworld. So, yeah, so all of that brings us to the idea of the masquerade itself and back to the idea of carnival, which we explored in depth in the third Witches Abroad episode. So as Roger Parker explains in the 1994 Oxford Illustrated History of Opera, masquerade balls originated in the opera houses of Italy as the culmination of the carnival season's theatrical productions, but became considered immoral by upper classes as the tradition was adapted into French and English culture uh, due to their attraction of the poor and their allegedly vulgar behaviour. <laughs> Um, to the extent that the upper classes eventually imposed dress codes on masquerades, demanding people were decently dressed, which ruled out most of the population that they were meant to include. We already discussed masquerades in the other episode, because this whole masquerade scene is a rehash of Witches Abroad, right? Yeah. You have the masquerade ball there, Nanny dresses up in the fancy clothing and pretends to be a socialite. Like, that's a scene from Witches Abroad. Yeah. Which there is probably a parody of scenes like this in Phantom of the Opera, where Pratchett didn't know he was going to write a book of Phantom of the Opera, but then he gets here and he just does it again. <laughs> like, we have Death in the Red Clothes walking through the scene, which is what that's from Phantom of the Opera, mm. but already happened in Masquerade. Death shows up in a red cloak in, the, the, in, in Witches Abroad. So I thought that was pretty lazy. <laughs> think it's something new Pratchett come on or it's you know it's a meta commentary about narrative imperative that once you've got a masquerade ball you got to have death there in the red I don't know to bring it back to the class things though the death being dressed in red at the masquerade ball is also an allusion to Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 short story The Mask of the Red Death mm-hmm. which is about the upper classes dancing at a masquerade ball while the lower classes all die from a plague outside hang on <laughs> That's relevant because everyone's at the Met Gala in America and then everyone in America is dying. (laughs) The Met Gala is an interesting one because I do look at it and go, we immediately meet to Hunger Games. The Hunger Games, exactly, yeah. But also it's a um, benefit for uh, the arts. I know. It's a charity event that's like, it includes like a lot of um, LGBT people and stuff. So I'm like, I don't know. Maybe we just need to change it up a bit. Like, do we need... $40,000 dresses. Is that something we need? Uh, The fashion industry in general, yeah. (sighs) The Phantom of the Op Shopper. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've, I've got it. (laughs) That's the biggest reaction I've got out of you. What if the Phantom of the Op Shopper was also a hip hopper? We'll get, what's he's the Hamilton guy in there? So good. I love puns. I don't know if that was much of a pun. There wasn't really a double meaning there. I just put funny sounds next to each other. I mean, yes, I am very funny. On top of being devastatingly attractive and quite witty at times. Ah, yeah, so everyone's dying from the plague outside in the the Mask of the Red Death, but then uh, the twist on that story is a plague victim then walks through 
the, the thing and kills them all. <laughs> Illustrating how disaster will come to those who try to exclude others, Reno says. So this is also another allusion to a story about the lower class coming for the upper class. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I guess the other thing to talk about here is is masks themselves, um, which I don't really have to say any much to say about, but I do feel like we should address, given that that's the major theme of the book that is called Masquerade. So in addition to social pretenses, Masquerade is full of double or false identities, people masking their personalities. Just to list them all off, you've got Agnes, who's... Padita and also the singer for Christine. You've got Christine who is masquerading as a singer. Mm-hmm. You have Granny Weatherwax who's masquerading as Lady Esperalda. You have Nanny being the Lunker Witch and also a, a maid or a servant at the Opera House. Um, you have Grebo who is portraying himself as human, as Lord Grebo as the ghost. Henry Slug who's being Enrico Basilica. Andre who's the undercover policeman. Um, Nobby who's there as Captain Nobbs who that's actually in, in Feet of Clay which is the next book. The whole plot point of that is uh, Nobby discovers he is of noble birth and that there is a Captain Nobbs family but then that turns out to be false and it was all a political ploy. Again this is Pratchett made a dumb joke about Captain Nobbs and was like, I'm going to make an entire plot out of that <laughs> for my next book and just run with it. What if Nobby was um, fancy? And then, of course, Count Detritus, which is another one of my favorite puns from yeah, the book. It's a good one. That one gets a belly laugh out of me every time I went past it in my audiobooks at night. I wonder if it's like, you know, you go to the opera to see people not being themselves on the stage, but also in the crowd because everyone's a snobby idiot. And so. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. This is like the thing where everyone who watches The Hunger Games is watching The Hunger Games. Yeah. Yeah, meta. Um, the real show is the audience. It's reflecting, which is gives a link to like, I, I want to bring up mirrors here because mirrors are another theme of the Phantom of the Opera, right? His passage is hidden. He visits what's her name in her room behind from behind the mirror and speaks to her through a double-sided mirror. And all the movies, there's big scenes of them smashing the mirror. Of course, his appearance is a whole thing. He doesn't want to see himself in the mirror. It's like he's looking at a broken mirror. Mirrors are a theme. We talked about mirrors. Mirrors. Anything to add? Mirrors. They're there. Mirrors are a mask. Reflective. Of course, there's the allusion to, like, the tragedy in humor masks, the Aristotelian theater masks, mm. the, the frowny face mask and the smiley face mask. You've got two ghosts. So I'm sort of wondering, like, is Salazar meant to be the tragedy mask? But then it doesn't make sense that Walter Plinge is the comedy mask. Like, he's not comedic. But if comedy is just in that theater mode of happy ending versus sad ending. That's a lot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's another one where I think Pratchett's, like, deliberately gesturing there. Mm. But isn't really making a point about it. Just the the illusions embedded in there by necessity. Also in by uh, Carpa Jugulum. And so in the next book, um, Agnes has learned to look around when she visited someone's home because in one way it was a piece of clothing and had grown to fit their shape uh, and might show not just what they'd been doing, but what they'd been thinking, having been told by Granny Weatherwax that a witch's cottage is their second face. So we have another allusion to Mars and the idea of witchcraft being outward performance. Because yes, again, we have this tension between Granny Weatherwax being all about authenticity, yeah. but also everything is an illusion. Yeah. All right, back to Atwood, I promised. Yay. So on a tooth. 2011 reflection on her early comic reading habits called Flying Rabbits. This is in the In Other Worlds book. Margaret Atwood speculates that Batman's mask may have come from the Commedia della Tra tradition, which is a 17th century Italian street theatre, or from Knights Incognito, such as Ivanhoe, or, and these are more sinister origins, from the Phantom of the Opera, or from Phantomus, which is not just the fifth best Mike Patton solo project, 
But a quote, masked and also French evil genius from the turn of the century, or it says possibly just from the standard masked robber of the comics. So again, this is that word association. She's going, or oh, Batman is like yeah. theater, which is like Phantomus, which is like Phantom of the Opera, which is like robbers. But also, Batman is very explicitly based on Zorro. <laughs> Bruce Wayne goes to see a performance of Zorro, and his parents are killed outside the theater. <clears throat> Like, that is written in the text of Batman. Mm, Zorro with bats. She is right. She eventually gets there through her, like, word association. And it's not an argument. You're right. (laughs) But also, she didn't need to do that, because the guy who invented Batman said, Batman is like Zorro. (laughs) Yes. It's not just Zorro, right? This is a popular archetype in 20th century comics, right? Batman comes out in the 1930s. But this is a popular archetype of the early 20th century, right? You've got other examples such as the the Shadow and the Scarlet Pimpernel that can be traced back to Ivanhoe. There's also a masked thief named the Bat in the 1930 (laughs) film The Bat Whispers, who Batman creator Bob Kane is credited as another direct inspiration. So yes, as I said, Atwood's not wrong, but it's not a mystery and she's not saying anything original or profound. Like, she presents that as, I have unraveled this truth. You haven't. No one was asking the question and he didn't come up with anything. It also, after all that, Batman has nothing to do with 17th century Italian street theory. Correct. So her starting point was way off. Mm. But the point of all that is, the sensitive, byronic, gothic villain and romantic rebel provide the basis for a lot of popular byronic heroes and anti-heroes in modern culture. That is my thesis! <laughs> and that's what we're going to analyse now. We've been talking a lot about Phantom of the Opera and Masquerade in terms of um, romantic and gothic archetypes, specifically the gothic villain. And as you mentioned, Alice, this is your entire thesis. So do you want to do well. the honours of introducing <laughs> the concept of um, the gothic villain for us? They're an interesting character because we start to get early versions of it in Shakespeare um, and they're kind of nefarious, troublemaking men. We see them in sort of the vice character um, that is very popular in Shakespearean drama, particularly the comedies and of course also the tragedies, but it really comes into its own uh, in the 18th century and most prominently, or really we draw a line and say this is the landmark first ever gothic villain is Horace Walpole's Castle of Otranto, uh, which is 1761. And in that we sort of get it developed as an archetype and some of the key hallmarks are they're often a patriarchal figure i.e they're the head of a family there is some sort of important lineage associated with them um they're often uh, motivated by the desire to maintain the purity or the power of that family or often to get money to support that family um and often they'll have a curse or a, ful- or a prophecy or something they're trying to fulfill and uh, that patriarchal motivation often manifests as oppression of women, unsurprisingly. And in the early versions, it is just, it just is that. But then as it starts to get developed, authors start to play around with this idea and criticize this uh, patriarchal oppression of women and use it as part of feminist commentary. So if Horace Walpole is the first ever gothic villain, we see it developed through poetry and plays and um, copycat um, variations for the next couple of decades until you get to Anne Radcliffe, who is the next sort of development in this figure. And she starts to imagine it as a patriarchal figure who literally oppresses women, um, often by locking them up in places, forcing them into marriage, engaging in or attempting to engage in some sort of incestuous relationship. Beyond that, though, once we've established these two sort of variations of the gothic villain. You've got the patriarchal figure who is patriarchal almost for the sake of it, and the patriarchal figure which is a commentary on female oppression and subjugation. You've sort of established two different modes of the gothic villain and people start to experiment and play with them from there. Was that all off the top of your head? Yeah. Very impressive, Alice. Thank you. 
Yeah, so we're going to look at this development um, and how it applies to Phantom of the Opera primarily, but I want to go back and start at the beginning with Walpole and with the Gothic villain in its original incarnation. So in his influential examination of the Byronic heroes, types, and prototypes from 1962, Peter L. Thorslev, who is very much our boy. He's our boy. Yeah, so in his examination of the um, gothic types and prototypes, Thorslev describes the gothic villain as always striking and frequently handsome, of about middle age or somewhat younger, with a tall, manly, stalwart physique, and dark hair and brows frequently set off by a pale and ascetic complexion. And that aside from this, the most noticeable of his physical characteristics were his eyes. Mm-hmm. Thorslev also notes that by birth, the gothic villain was always of the aristocracy, partly for the sense of power which his nobility confers, and partly for the air of the fallen angel, the air of the satanic greatness perverted and that there is frequently some mystery connected with his birth or his upbringing so my theory here is that after satan and we've talked about this maybe on this podcast before definitely on my other one which is called of the devil's party you can find us on sounder satan acts as a turning point for representation of the dark hero so i've just said it again because he is a sympathetic version of them the first ever genuinely sympathetic bad guy and i think or my theory is that after that he splits off and has sort of two very distinct traditions and one is the romantic satanic hero and the other is the gothic villain and the differences in the in the satanic hero of romanticism all of his best traits are taken and emphasized and made more sympathetic and all of his worst traits are put into the gothic villain and emphasized right. there yeah <laughs> yeah so and you're specifically talking about uh, milton say paradise loss Correct, thank you. We've literally just talked about it on our Manfred episode. So you're saying this happens even before the Gothic um, tradition is established, because like Castle of Otranto is often considered the first Gothic novel. You're saying even before, it's not like there was a Gothic villain, Satan comes along and splits the character. It's that Satan came along and the tropes of Satan were then later divided. Yeah. I mean, you can read all this in Thorslev's book, Analysis Thesis. Thorslev also claims that in their original incarnation, Gothic villains had no psychological, muscleless, philosophical complexity, right? They're the mustache twirling villains. They are, after all, pasteboard characters. However, they did have great strength of will and also a forceful and ingenious mind, since they must devise the endless machinations of evil which make up the intricate plots of three-volume novels, even though their motives seemed inadequate to the torrents of evil unleashed in their personalities. And Thorslev continues that it should be noted, moreover, that they are misogynists all. They take great delight that they are misogynists all, taking great delight in persecuting women, partly from the exigencies of the plot, since these are all novels of female sensibility, but they go much further in this persecution than would be necessary to further their particular ends. So this is reflecting what you were saying, that their their evil is often expressed through their... They kidnap women, right? This is the mustache-twirling villain who kidnaps a woman and then and all of that. This is the, the archetype there. This, to me, pretty obviously applies to Eric or the Phantom in Phantom of the Opera, with some exceptions. Does that fit for you? Yeah. He definitely kidnaps a woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not particularly um, philosophically complex, despite um, his intricate plots and evil machinations. Yeah, that's what annoyed me about him. I found him quite boring for that reason. Oh, he is a, a what does Thorsef say? A cardboard, a pasteboard character. He is just the gothic villain. I, I don't think he's just the gothic villain. I do think there's more stuff going on there, because this also comes a hundred years after Byron. So we're, we're talking much later. But in terms of using the archetypes, um, Leroux is using this um, fan of the opera character, and I, I do think he subverts it by making... Um, the Phantom sympathetic, as we'll get to. Mm. Although maybe not as sympath- sympathetic as we think of him nowadays in the original novel, where he's sort of just a monstrous kidnapper. Yeah. Um, the only bit here that I think contradicts is that the Phantom of the Opera is pretty definitively not hot. <laughs> 
That's sort of his defining characteristic. Yeah. But in in the original novel, like that's the reason why he's exiled from society is he's too ugly to exist in it. He's monstrous. It's the Frankenstein. Mm. Everyone makes fun of him because he's got no nose. How does he smell? He, his face looks like a skull is really the description in, in the book. So he is forced out of society by his monstrous appearance and then becomes a gothic villain. As Thorslev observes, and as Alice just told us, the gothic villain made its first appearance in Horace Walpole's Castle of Otranto from 1761, uh, which is fitting since it's the first gothic novel. So the villain of the first gothic novel is the first gothic villain, sort of is a tautology there. Yep. Um, do we want to talk about Otranto a bit? If you like. For people who haven't read it, and I imagine that's not many, and also you probably shouldn't because it's not very good. It's very short though. Oh yeah, but it took me so long and all the interesting stuff happens in like the first 15 pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what, what happens? There's a wedding and a, a giant a giant ghost helmet appears out of nowhere and squashes the groom. Yep, that's the first thing that happens in the book. It's great. And it's never explained. So we need to get another person to marry the lady to to continue the family legacy and make sure the, the line is pure. So the dad of the groom decides he's going to marry her and she's like, mm, no thank you though, uh, <laughs> and freaks out. And then some guy comes by and she falls in love with him. And then he tries to help her escape. And then the bad guy, his name is Manfred, is chasing her forever. And every, there's a deuce, deuce ex machina, is that how you say it? Deus ex machina. Deus sex machina there we are at the end and everything sort of all goes back to normal but the point is it's Isabella running from Manfred basically for the entirety of the play and his wife is just like okay the women are treated as just props to continue this bloodline which I guess I was going to say for the time but again the whole point is none of this is actually written in or set in an accurate gothic no. time if there is such a thing but um in the medieval um, setting of the, of the book, the, the women are there as tools to be used to continue family relationships and things. The other most famous and influential early Gothic novels, which you mentioned, are Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolfo from 1794 and The Italian from 1797 and Matthew Lewis's The Monk from 1796. That one I've read. I have not read Radcliffe's books because they're long and I'm a bad person. They are long. Um, What I will say there is what's interesting about those ones is... Radcliffe publishes Udolfo and everyone says, uh, these are excellent, but some people are annoyed because, oh, she's a silly woman. And her novels are famously um, Scooby-Doo. It's preternatural instead of the supernatural. Uh, the mysteries are proven to be just normal things happening and normally men behind them. Matthew Lewis reads that and goes, now nah, let's turn it up, though. Writes The Monk, which is full of rape, incest, and murder. And Satan. And Satan, actual ghosts, <laughs> actual people being chucked off cliffs. And then she writes The Italian in response to that, which is all of that scary stuff stuff but done psychologically again so there's this war going on between whether or not it's horror or terror whether or not it's psychological terror or it needs to be real things so it's fun because i think that comes together in phantom of the opera a bit because you've got everyone going oh there's a ghost there's a ghost there's a ghost constantly right. so it could be supernatural but it's proven to be preternatural but he's also a psychopath yeah you're right so it's it's superstition being explained by mm -hmm. um uh, i guess a rational explanation which also happens in masquerade as well right mm -hmm. which doesn't really make Makes sense as we discussed being in the supernatural fantasy world that everything has a natural explanation so that i guess that's another way that pratchett is sort of nodding towards this gothic tradition as well he retains yeah the preternatural version so yeah thorslev considers the gothic villains in these novels to be representative of the model established by walpole right they're still just these pretty surface level mustache twirling villains who are kidnapping women and, and running around doing nefarious schemes um nevertheless though he observes a certain allure to the 
the character type at this point, saying that the gothic villain is the protagonist of the novels in which he appears in the sense that he is the major character. So even though he's the villain, he's almost the, a protagonist villain, yet as much as they're the main characters then they drive the action, they also acknowledge the moral codes of their societies and their own wickedness in violating these codes, and therefore never fully engage our sympathies with their rebellions uh, against them, persevering in evil to the end and spurning any deathbed repentance. So these characters are compelling, but not likable. They're not sympathetic. They're interesting, but we're not really rooting for them. Yep. So all these books end with their defeat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, the romantic satanic hero is likable despite their awfulness. This is where I think the distinction is. It becomes very difficult to ever reconcile the gothic villains' crimes with their sympathetic qualities, uh, and that is an established thing in their tradition. The only one that might you might be able to, I think, is Frankenstein. Well, this is, we're still like 20 years before Frankenstein at this point. This is sort of pre- the romantic schism year um, or at the very start of it with Radcliffe my point is in, in the gothic tradition they're using Satan and taking his worst qualities they're kind of going oh we could sympathise but actually we can't because of the worst qualities they're starting to do that whereas the romantics they're off most of them all of them love the gothic and they start to develop an alternative tradition which is um, they have, they're bad uh, but you like them anyway so I think the two are working um, adjacent to each other parallel to each other it's very difficult to find a gothic villain that is genuinely sympathetic so you're saying, well, once they, by definition, once they become sympathetic, they're no longer proper gothic villains. Yeah, or, or they're another variation or the next, gen, you know, generation of gothic villain. Yeah. Right. And in her... 2017 uh, chapter Ready for His Close-Off about the transition from horror to romance in The Phantom of the Opera. Jessica Sternfeld um, argues that The Phantom of the Opera still fits this mold in its original novel form, right? Saying that we might pity The Phantom and we might even be drawn to his seductive ideas and his dark bad boy persona, but he is nevertheless a murderer, a dysfunctional and unreformable reject of society, and that Christine has to go with her other love interest, Raoul, right? The resolution of the novel is not she runs away with The Phantom it's that she rejects the Phantom and goes back to society with the normal pretty boy. So in its original form, the Phantom of the Opera is playing into this gothic villain stereotype. Yeah, yeah, completely um, unreconcilable actions. Yeah. Uh, Thorslev writes that during his initial phase, the gothic villain of the novel was in somewhat the same situation as was Satan before he was romanticised by Blake and Shelley. He has attractive characteristics, including a striking appearance and, and the air of the fallen angel and a romantic mystery, but he is not yet a romantic rebel. To become a romantic hero, he must take on some of the characteristics of the hero of sensibility, and he must be able to enlist at least a portion of our sympathies in his rebellion against society. I go off at that in my chapter. <laughs> I think there's more to it than that, but you can come listen to our, my other podcast. We also have here in sort of a metafictional analysis, the idea of tradition and literary tropes forcing people to behave in certain ways, right? Once LaRoe starts writing a novel about a gothic villain, this is how the story has to end, right? Mm. So yes, it is him writing a story, but that's sort of the real world equivalent of why the characters are acting in certain ways in Masquerade and things, that once the story starts, you have to end at that point. It's not just the character, the character type itself determines the shape of the story, Yeah, which I think is what Pratchett's playing with. Another aspect of the gothic villain and romantic archetypes that Pratchett is engaging with is their development through the theatrical tradition. Yeah, so this gothic villain character type has persisted throughout books and novels to, well, at least the, the early 20th century. 
century, although as Thorslev observes, although the gothic villain remained an unregenerate villain in the early novels, he became gradually more sympathetic throughout his theatrical portrayals until at last he appeared as half-villain, half-hero of sensibility, becoming a true romantic rebel and anti-hero in the works of Walter Scott and Lord Byron. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to do two things here. The theatrical tradition, but also this idea that um, he he becomes something else, half-villain, half-hero of sensibility. I think the point is, it's a different hero type. It doesn't go from gothic villain into something else. The gothic villain is sustained as its own character type. It does its thing, but we're starting to get experiments with the gothic villain. So there's characters who have aspects of the gothic villain, but are actually doing other stuff, and we would call them a hero of sensibility, a romantic rebel, a satanic hero. And I think continuing to call them gothic villains, or starting to do what Thorslev does, which shits me, um, it's like, oh, it's half this, it's half that, it's a third this. I think it's better to try and look at the different avenues of characterization. So I say that. On, on top of that, though, with the theatrical development, what I think is really interesting here, and you can chime in as well, Manfred, who is one of uh, Byron's uh, more, more interesting characters from his closet dramas, it came out in 1817, has aspects of the gothic villain in him, and he's quite a sympathetic character, but he really gets popular when they start adapting it for the stage, and I think that's where the gothic villain starts to get a lot of its popularity from. Similarly, Frankenstein picks up popular opinion after it's adapted for the stage, which is when um, Frankenstein is sort of starts to be represented as a mad scientist, and the creature starts to be represented as a monster. So it's almost like they double down on some of these stereotypes rather than acknowledging the complexity that's developed. That also applies to Dracula mm-hmm. and the fandom of the opera itself. And as we talked about previously, right, not an opera, not a, um, a stage play originally, but is now primarily known as the musical. Yeah. So Thorslev argues that this transformation is primarily brought about by the shifting of emphasis from unmitigated wickedness on the part of the gothic villain to a deep and agonized remorse for past sins. And that's what you're saying or have said is a definitive aspect of the Byronic romantic dark hero, yeah? Yeah. Three of the more notable uh, playwrights who illustrate this trend are Joanna Bailey, Matthew Lewis, who we already mentioned, and William Southby. Um, I only know Matthew Lewis really out of those uh, people. Are you you're familiar with Southby and Bailey? Familiar, yeah. I've read The Castle yeah. Spectre. I haven't read the others. Well, the example of Lewis is interesting because of his contrary portrayal of the gothic villain in The Monk. Although Thorslev dismisses his plays as ventures in undisguised commercialism with no literary merit. Oof, that's harsh. I mean, I haven't read The Castle Spectre. Is it? Is it just it's trash? Fun. I mean, it's trash in the same way the monk is trash. It's 400 pages as the monk is <laughs> of just like, oof. <laughs> I mean, what he's referring to there is the development of what we refer to now as like the masculine or the Germanic Gothic, which is, as I said before, terror instead of horror, like actual bad, uh, sorry, horror instead of terror, actual bad things are happening. That's the problem. Well, we've got a bit of this, you know, divide between real literature and populist drama, you know, opera and genre literature that we talked about in the last part. But nevertheless, as Thorslev also notes, the popular success of these plays was phenomenal, especially that of the Castle Spectre. So what this is telling us here, or what this suggests is that the sympathetic characters are are popular. They are, you know, getting a response from the audience that maybe the satanic complex gothic villains and things aren't necessarily reaching, or is it just more to do with the accessibility of the plays themselves than their actual content? I think it's part of the accessibility uh, and the fact that they are so 
horrifyingly awful, it becomes, okay, well, I have to go and see it now and see what everyone's talking about. It's almost like it appeals to, you know, humanity's obsession with weird and perverse things. You know, like Tiger King. Tiger King is crazy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And everyone watched it because it was crazy. Um, I think it's the same sort of thing. Like, have you seen The Castle Spectre? You've got to go see it. And everyone went and saw it. And it also makes these ideas um, more digestible to a popular audience. Uh, You know, in quick a five quick tactic session, you can see the degradation of this character rather than a 500-page novel. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, Joe Exotic is not a particularly sympathetic character. Yeah. It's Southby's Julian and Agnes, however, that Bertrand Evans calls the strangest and perhaps best gothic play in his 1947 examination of gothic drama from Walpole to Shelley, identifying it as the most likely link between the gothic villain and the Byronic hero of Byron's Manfred. Um, And he says, In the third act, the play's gothic villain turned hero of sensibility, Alfonso, divulges the secret sin that he had lived in a bigamous relationship with Agnes and the young Alan and had slew Alan's brother in a sudden fit of anger when he returned and accused him of being in a bigamous relationship. See, I think that's it. It's it's weird and perverse. Everyone wants to yes. go and see it. Do we want to explain what a hero of sensibility is quickly? Touchy feely blokes. Um, <laughs> Not so much touchy, right? They just feely. More feely. <laughs> They're in touch with their emotions and very attuned to the world around them. They don't kidnap women. They just look at them and, and cry. Yeah, literally cry at beautiful women. What's the 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 man of feeling? McKen- Henry Mackenzie, yeah, mm. that's the sort of definitive hero of sensibility novel, which that is literally chapters of this guy going to different places where sad things are happening and, yep. and crying about it. As false live notes, like Byron's later Manfred, Alfonso then retreats to the Alps, taking up residence in a monastery from which he ventures out to rescue lost travellers, later being killed while protecting Agnes and Ellen from a group of bandits. He says there is then a long repentance scene wherein both women tearfully forgive the villain hero so that he expires in the good graces of God and man. It's interesting because I think Byron takes uh, this, well, obviously Byron spent a lot of time in the Alps and wanted to write about it, but it was being written about the idea of the hero of sensibility wandering around in the Alps. And like, is Byron's trying to live this gothic villain life as well, sort of, right? Absolutely, yes. When we call it the Byronic hero, like, we've got a bit of a cycle going on there. He identifies with Satan quite literally in, in multiple letters. I went through them today because I did a footnote on them. Yeah, so the the point here, though, in the transition to uh, Southby's play is that the gothic villain is a hero because they are ultimately forgiven. Well, they repent and then they are forgiven. Similarly, as Sternfeld observes, the Phantom, with his incurable disfigurement, must be killed at the end of his story, choosing to disappear in a seemingly noble act of self-sacrifice in order to save Christine. You're you're sort of rolling your eyes at that. What do do you reckon, Alice? Do you think he actually disappears as self-sacrifice or is it that Christine gets out and he goes, oh, well, I'll just leave? Yeah, it's definitely is played as a sacrifice in the later adaptations, but in terms of the actual novel, it's sort Mm. of he accepts defeat. It's not so much that he switches sides, but he's just like, ah, all right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, so that's how it relates to the fandom. Do we see this relating to uh, Salazar and Walter in Masquerade at all? Not really, right? Do we find them sympathetic? I didn't really well, find Walter's obviously meant to be sympathetic, but he doesn't mm. necessarily have to sacrifice himself, and Salazar doesn't repent at all. So I think, like, something I'm getting at with all of this is that I think Salazar, cle- Salazar is clearly the gothic villain. He's a 100% gothic villain. He's the one, and the machinations, and the plotting, and the mustache twirling, and he does the big gothic, you know, monologue, and the letters with the multiple exclamation marks and everything. He is clearly a parody of the gothic villain. But he's pitted against mm. Walter, who is this sympathetic ghost. So what I'm 
probing at mm-hmm. is like, is Pratchett pitting the gothic villain and the hero of sensibility or the romantic archetype against each other? And I think that definitely works for Salazar, but I, I don't know if it works for Walter. I could see it. I would probably argue it's not done very well. Like Walter's more of a victim than a hero until, mm. until the end when he just becomes the like rebel outlaw swashbuckling sort of villain but yeah he doesn't have to sacrifice anything or anything like that mm. so i don't know if it really fits but i think there's something there in his introduction to the 2012 oxford university press edition of phantom of the opera david coward similarly locates the phantom in a series of disfigured gothic villains including hugo's quasimodo and gwynplaine do you know gwynplaine not at all is from his 1869 novel the man who laughs he's literally just the joker he's a guy who oh. had his face cut into a permanent smile and is a weird clown who goes around harassing people Hmm. yeah so Quasimodo and Gwynplaine Frankenstein's creature Mr. Hyde and Dracula who we'll talk about more later as well as characters in Poe's Mask of the Red Death The Pit and the Pendulum and The Fall of the House of Usher Um, I think this is interesting because yes he's the Phantom is a representation of all these creatures but he's also both Frankenstein and the creature right he's Mm. the mad scientist and the ugly outcast he's Jekyll and Hyde in one I guess Jekyll and Hyde are Jekyll and Hyde in one but at once (laughs) yeah Yeah. No wonder he's having so much trouble. So there's something going on there. I mean, we're talking about blending gothic villains and heroes of sensibility, maybe, and that the Phantom blends the mad scientist with his monster. I mm. guess Jekyll and Hyde is the go-to archetype of that. But yeah, as I was trying to get at, Jekyll is ultimately able to get rid of Hyde. Yeah. And they're still represented as different consciousness within the same body. Right. So... They're different personalities. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's something maybe maybe not original, but maybe interesting to do with the Phantom of the Opera. Because Coward also points out, the characters in the Phantom of the Opera also reenact scenes from Bluebeard, Don Juan, and mm. Beauty and the Beast, and Trilby. Um, which, when we were discussing this before, and we were saying, "Oh, is it a parody? What is it? Is it this? Is it a rewriting?" What the word we were looking for is pastiche. Phantom Correct. of the Opera is a pastiche in the pre-postmodern sense. It's not critiquing any of this. It's not. There's no comment. It's literally just collecting all the Gothic influences from the last hundred, hundred and fifty years and ramming them all together. And the Phantom of the Opera is what comes out. Yeah, like spaghetti. <laughs> um, the Slavic uh, philosopher Slavov Zizek similarly argues that the Phantom's final self-sacrifice represents a final reversal, whereby the agent previously identified as villain suddenly changes into a donor, into a mediator, by means of his sacrifice, enabling the hero's salvation. And Zizek notes that this is the same reversal which characterizes pop culture villains from the ambiguous status of the Hitchcockian villain up to Darth Vader in the Star Wars trilogy, and who one should not forget also wears a mask concealing a distorted amorphous face and plays the role of the anal father. So, fan of the opera, Darth Vader, I think that's that's a pretty good, um, oh, yeah. so take off his mask, yeah. Comparison. Um, but also showing the perseverance of these archetypes into Star Wars, and we talked about Batman as well, so they're there. Continuing in relation to the theatrical development of the gothic hero, in a note to her 1812 collection, a series of plays in which it is attempted to delineate the stronger passions of the mind, uh, which contains two gothic plays, Aura and The Dream, notes that when a painter wishes to give intelligence and expression to a face he does not make his light sit upon the under part of his chin the nostrils and the under curve of the eyebrows turning of course all the shadows upwards he does the very reverse of all this that the eye may look hollow and dark under the shade of its brow that the shadow of the nose may shorten the upper lip and give a greater character of self to the mouth and that any fullness of the under chin may be the better concealed 
From this disposition of the light in our theatres, whenever an actor whose features are not particularly sharp and pointed comes under the front of the stage and turns his face fully to the audience, every feature immediately becomes shortened and snub (laughs) and less capable of any expression unless it be of the ludicrous kind. Right, so this is describing how people appear on the stage under, you know, lights coming from above. It's saying there's something like a particular gothic atmosphere to drama itself. And I also thought this was interesting because that description there, the shadow of the nose may shorten the upper lip and give great character of um, sense to the mouth. Like, this is sort of describing the Phantom's face. I wonder if there's something going on Mm. there where his distortions are meant to be a representation of, you know, looking up at at someone on the stage. Do we ever actually get a description of the mask in Masquerade? Yeah, it's just like a white mask, right? Mm. But this leads us to another common trope of gothic villains, particularly later ones, uh, which is physical disfigurement. Dale Townsend notes in his 2019 chapter on the gothic and the question of ethics, otherness, alterity, and violence Examples of radical alterity in and of the face proliferate through Gothic texts of the 20th and 21st centuries. Yeah, and this is certainly true of the Phantom, whose face is described as having two big black holes set in a dead man's skull, with nasty yellow skin stretched across his bones like a drumhead, and his nose disturbingly absent. Townsend connects this depiction to the weird countenances in Otranto, Frankenstein, and Poe. I'm not sure about that, because is Manfred, we're talking about uh, Walpole's Manfred from Otranto, is he deformed at all? No, he's just a douchebag. Obviously he's deformed of spirit, right? He's this incentuous kidnapping man. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, you definitely see it in um, Frankenstein and, and Poe and stuff, so I get what they're saying there, but I wasn't sure, because they specifically call out Otranto, and I'm like, I don't think there's any actual disfigurement. I mean, what's his name? Falsley was saying how handsome early gothic villains were. Is there any of... Um, Mm. Radcliffe and Lewis's villains. No, they're all pretty sexy. So that's sort of interesting in that they don't start off like that and then get sexy in their Byronizing. They're already sexy when they're just villains. Yeah, they're just bad dudes who look nice. Beware. Well, it's literally lock up your daughters, but also that's what they're trying to do. So I don't know if two wrongs make a right. (laughs) (laughs) Also, on the note of the nose, which is sort of the main point of Eric's disfigurement in The Phantom, his whole point why he has to hide away is he's got no nose. He looks like a skull. So yes, in his 1999 article, Grimaces of the Real or When the Phallus Appears, this is is Zhuzhok again, he explores the usefulness of interpreting high and low culture in comparison to each other through an analysis of The Phantom of the Opera, which he calls undoubtedly mass culture's central appreciation. Right, This is right at the height of the, the musical success. So he's sort of doing what we were saying, fan of the opera and masquerade do. He's examining the flattening of high and low culture, this postmodern flattening through an analysis of fan of the opera, which is a pop treatment of high culture. Arguing from a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective that the Phantom's noseless face, which repulses even his own mother, was an embodiment of her own penis envy due to its lack of an excessive phallic protuberance. Yes, before I saw what you'd written there, I was about to say that. Oh, that he's taking the piss. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, though, I think he is taking the piss. Yeah. This is the sort of thing Zizek would do for, just throw this out there like, eh, Freud said it, the nose is a dick. What do you think? Can't argue with me. Freud said it. Yes, you can. Yes, we can. <laughs> Zizek. <laughs> Yeah, so bringing this idea of disfigurement back to Pratchett, in his 2020 article about Pratchett's thought experiments about the body, which we talked about in relation to Unseen Academicals in the first ever episode, Peter Hajduri similarly observes that the Gothic tradition always used people with artificial implants as villains, those with hook hands or wooden legs only exceptionally appearing as lovable characters. And he primarily connects this to Pratchett's Igors, who we're going to talk about more next episode because they first appear in Masquerade, Um, but I think it's perhaps more relevant to Masquerade, especially in terms 
terms of the Gothic tradition. Pratchett subverts this trope of the disfigured villain by having the non-disfigured Selzalar turn out to be the main villain, while the physically awkward Walter Plinge is the sympathetic and ultimately heroic good ghost. Yeah, fair enough. So I see this, but the problem here is, like, Walter's not actually disfigured, right? He's just sort of hunched. He's not, I don't think he's, yeah, deformed at all. Yeah, he's not missing an eyeball. mm. And the other thing is that he sheds his limp and his hunch when he becomes heroic. When he puts on the mask and becomes the ghost, he stands upright and is very confident. So this is actually sort of reinforcing the trope that you are, like, you can't be heroic and hunched. Yeah, tell that to Quasimodo. That's a good point. I really wish I'd read... Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's so long, though. I'm going off the movie, people, but he seems nice in that. He does, but also that's the Disney one, so I, I can't credit it. <laughs> yeah, as Sternfield notes, when there's a disabled character in a story, that character will usually end up cured or killed or dead, with the expectation being that such a character can be interesting and propel the plot um, and can have an impact on the other characters and on the audience, but the character cannot simply carry on being disabled. So yeah, this is the idea that Walter is cured at the end of Masquerade. And Agnes is sort of also deformed, or at least Pratchett's portraying her as, right? She is overweight, she's obese to the point where she doesn't fit in with society. And then, as we mentioned at the end, Granny compliments her on losing weight. So she's also part of this trope. So these ideas are definitely connected in Masquerade. Yeah, fatphobic as hell. So in the, in the original Phantom of the Opera, he's not cured, he's killed. Although, in, on a meta level, right, the Phantom has sort of been cured of his ugliness as time has gone on and as the story has been adapted, as we're about to talk about. So as Sternfeld notes, in the stage version, the original stage version of the Phantom of the Opera, the Phantom's face is intensely deformed, and she argues that we need his face to be disgusting for us to be able to let him be a murderer with whom we sympathise. Right? She's sort of going against this. He wouldn't be sympathetic if he was the original gothic villain who was just murdering people and was a douchebag, but because he's this Frankenstein's creature-esque outcast, we do sort of sympathise him and it gives him a bit of motivation for his bad behaviour. Okay. Uh, She says, We need his face to be disgusting for us to weep tenderly at his self-sacrifice, but also, of course, he can't be with Christine at the end of the book. Are we buying this? I think where we're butting against is the, um, we don't know if the Phantom really sacrifices himself. Yeah. But this is the Frankenstein thing, right? The reason why the creature is seen as a sympathetic character, because he, yeah, he, as I said earlier, he murders a child. And everyone else. I think it's interesting because he is initially a benevolent creature. It's after society spurns him, he goes batshit crazy, goes after revenge, and yeah, kills a child. So it's, I think, yes, it's in his character, but I think it's more commentary from Shelley on what happens if you are um, ostracized by society, abandoned by everyone, and, you know. You do get more of that with the creature because you get the whole scene of him living with the Delacys and being in the yeah. wilderness and all of that. But in Phantom of the Opera, we do get his backstory that he was shunned by his mother. So the whole thing with Frankenstein being the rejection of the father and it's the metaphor for, you know, the fall of Adam and Eve and all of that. Yep. In the Phantom of the Opera, we get, well, he was so ugly, not even his mother could love him. I mean, that's it with Frankenstein, isn't it? It's like, he was so ugly, his creator was like, out of my house! Yeah, so this is an indictment on parenting. It is a mm. nurture rather than nature argument in both these books. Part of it, yes. Stenfeld also notes, however, the Phantom's appearance was greatly softened, along with his demeanour, during his transition from stage to screen, from theatre to film. So we're going to look at some of the uh, Phantom of the Opera film adaptations now, because I've spent the last week watching them all. <laughs> have, you, have you seen any of these? <laughs> Only the couple of YouTube videos I watched. I was like, this is, right. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um... I don't recommend many, if any of them. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, so the sympathetic turn of both the Phantom and the Gothic villain is reflected in his film adaptations, which begin, I mean, there's earlier French ones and I think there's some lost films, but as far as the English popular tradition, there's the silent film from 1925, which is the big famous one. But so in that one, he's got, he's got a weird mask with this weird paper flap over the mouth that's very strange. But then he rips that off and he's sort of this, you know, giant headed zombie looking motherfucker. Not my type. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, here he's a very, he's a monster. He's portrayed as this weird... He's Voldemort, yeah. So this film was banned in Britain four years after its release for being too horrifying for general distribution. And now we have the human centipede. Well, now we have the human centipede. I mean, this is a big thing. I actually wrote about this in The Island of Dr. Moreau, because mm. that was one of the last films ever banned because of not the actual horror elements, but the animal dissections and things in it. Good reason. <laughs> yeah, but so this film was banned for being horrifying, but also we already see this sympathetic change because, like, this is a silent film that comes up with the dialogue and the title cards in between the scenes. And one of the things the Phantom says that sits on the screen is, if I am to change, your love will redeem me. Put the onus on the woman. Right, but this is, again, the Frankenstein thing is, yeah. I need a wife to go away and be peaceful. So that's where we're starting. Then you get the Universal film from 1943. So in his, in his mask form, I've got, he looks very much like the Green Hornet. Yeah. Which was around at the same time in the 40s. So he's sort of taking on that, you know, masked hero Zorro thing, mm. like the early pulps with Batman and thing. He's represented as a heroic type in his mask rather than a phantom type. Yeah. And then, yeah, so you take the mask off, the side of his face is burnt. He's hot there though, right? Like, he's not my type. But he's not that ugly. If Nick got burnt that way tomorrow, I hope he doesn't. I wouldn't care. This one, though, is relevant to Masquerade. In this movie, the reason why the Phantom of the Opera is disfigured is... But even though with this one, it's more of a a horror depiction that I do think you see, at least aesthetically, referenced throughout later horror stuff, here we get a definitive self-sacrifice. Because this film ends very abruptly by the Phantom is watching um, the performance of the play, which in this is about Joan of Arc rather than Faust, and sees that the chandelier is going to fall on Christine. So he stands up in the audience and throws off his mask and runs onto the stage and pushes her out of the way and he gets squashed and it zooms up on his face and that's the end of the film. Guy does one good thing at the end and suddenly he's a hero. Right, but that's the <laughs> logic of the... Um, yeah, yeah. Right? You get kicked out of one house, you kill a child. You read yeah. one book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you read one epic poem. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't take much. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's sort of less disfigured but more disfigured. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't. No, thank you but he's fine. <laughs> I mean, he should be allowed in society. He should be allowed in society. Then we're jumping to the most recent adaptation of the Phantom of the Opera before uh, Masquerade comes out is maybe the TV film from 1990 starring Charles Dance as the Phantom. Do you know who Charles Dance is? Of course I know who Charles Dance is. Who's Charles Dance? He's an actor. He's a British actor. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what am I missing here? Who does he play? Obviously Tywin Lannister. That's who I was going for. Yeah, he's Tywin Lannister. He's also that guy in the, he wears the spandex and he's a meme. Where's the spandex and he's a meme? He does a dancey thing. Spandex dancey meme. Hang on. Ah, here it is. Tywin Lannister shakes oh, okay. that ass. I have seen this, but I don't know what it is from. Oh, it's from LEG in the house. <laughs> Okay, no? <laughs> Alright. Oh, yes, he's Tywin Lannister. So that stars him as a rather suave. Yeah, he's hot. I didn't actually watch this one. It looks pretty good in the, the fandom mask there, and I, I wasn't actually able to find um, a picture of him without the mask, without watching the film. Um, although, I, as I have pointed out, very Slipknot looking again. Yeah. My big takeaway from all of this is that uh, the guitarist from Slipknot based his mask on Phantom of the Opera, and that gives it full horror credibility. So he's looking a bit more suave in this one, although this version of the Phantom of the Opera is actually adapted from Arthur Collins' 
Coppett's book of his stage musical, which debuted in 1991. Apparently there's a book version in 1990 because this TV movie comes out in 1990. So I think the TV movie came out before the stage play. I'm not really sure on the timeline on this one. But in this version, again, along with him looking more handsome, we have the flip where it's the Phantom's mother who is the only one who accepts him rather than rejects him. That's creepier somehow though, isn't it? Well, this is um, Jason Voorhees' mother from Friday the 13th. Also who the other guitarist from Slipknot, I've just realized, based his mask off the Jason Voorhees character. So the guitarists of Slipknot are Jason Voorhees and the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, the, the dude with the hockey mask. Okay. You, you know the guy with the hockey mask and the machete? Uh, it's ringing bells. Right. So this is your, your big slasher icons are Michael Myers from Halloween, Freddy Krueger, who we're going to get to in a second, and Jason Voorhees, who's the hockey mask guy. But in the original Friday the 13th film, he's not in it, the hockey mask guy. The story of Friday the 13th is that there was a kid who was disfigured, deformed, right? And he was at a school camp and everyone was bullying him and mean to him and he was drowning in the lake and all the counsellors like stood and laughed at him rather than trying to help him. And then there's rumors that, well, he came back and started murdering everyone at the camp. So it's Frankenstein. Yes, right? (laughs) But it turned out to be in the twist of the first movie is it's not him. It's his mother who is taking her revenge on the counselors. Fair enough, honestly. But then in later films, it's just him. He comes out of the lake and he's a zombie and then he goes to space. (sighs) I guess this is where Pratchett gets Mrs. Plinge from, right? In Masquerade, it's his mother who's nice to him. So I think Pratchett is, yeah, maybe basing his version less off the Weber musical, maybe off this musical or this TV movie, at least in that aspect. That was a TV movie, the most recent film film or significant film adaptation of Fan of the Opera before Masquerade came out was from a year earlier, from 1989. And this is a slasher adaptation of Fan of the Opera starring Robert Englund, Freddy Krueger himself, which uh, we've got the posters there from Nightmare of Elm Street next to the Phantom of the Opera poster. They're very much going for the Phantom is Freddy Krueger, yeah? Okay. Because Freddy Krueger's whole thing, i got to give you slasher lore now. Freddy Krueger's whole thing is that he was a pedophile who the oh. parents of the um, town banded together and burnt to death, right? They lit his house on fire with him inside, but then he comes back as a ghost and haunts people in their dreams. But that's why his face is like that, because it's like scarring from being burned. But he was a pedophile, so why? What? He's a bad guy. Oh, he's just a bad guy. Yeah. I don't like him. <laughs> the point I'm making there is you can see that they're really just trying to ape the whole Freddy Krueger thing in essentially putting Freddy Krueger on the poster for the Phantom of the Opera. This is the one movie, this is the one ad- adaptation of all of these that I recommend because it's sick. <laughs> okay. And it's a, it's a Faustian thing as well because it's about a lady who finds his Don Juan triumphant thing and recites it and then gets sent back in time and then she ends up inspiring the whole thing. This is the Freddy Krueger one? Yeah, this is the Freddy Krueger one because the right. story here is that Eric, the, the Phantom of the Opera, sold his soul to a devil to get the Don Juan triumphant score. So it's a whole Faustian story. He does have a fake nose that falls off. <laughs> he also comes down and zorros some guys in an alleyway, which we get in Masquerade as well. You can't really see, but he's, he like stitches his face back together and he's like falling apart because that's the um, the curse of the, the demon and stuff. Anyway, this movie's cool, um, but that's sort of the exception to the, to the trend. Otherwise, we've seen a progression of him getting more and more handsome, more and more sympathetic, more and more heroic. Uh, until we get to the 2004 Joel Schumacher adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber play, which, as you mentioned, stars Gerard Butler. This is three years before 300. This seems more Beauty and the Beastie, doesn't it? Very much so. Um, you got the rose, obviously. Oh, yeah. And Lloyd, Andrew Lloyd Webber claims he cast Gerard Butler since he fit his idea of the Phantom as somebody with an edge uh, <laughs> um, who represented the sort of dangerous man who has a rough rock and roll sensibility. So Byron. <laughs> so Byron, right? With Schumacher describing the two suitors, 
um, as a stud muffin. That's mm. Raul. He's, he's the pretty boy. And um, this insane charismatic madman who has this incredible sexual pull on her who he described as every dad's nightmare come true. <laughs> Byron. <laughs> <laughs> so here, you know, the Phantom is being cast and portrayed specifically as a sexually enticing character, right? He's not just sympathetic. He's meant to be attractive and alluring. Yeah, we'd both bang him, wouldn't we? Oh, I don't know. He's very annoying in the movie. He doesn't have to talk during. I don't know. I'd let him kick me into a pit. Okay. That's 300. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah. But also, he takes, he wears a couple of masks. And you see here, the second one, the black mask, very Zorro. Very Zorro. Very Zorro. This looks like Antonio Banderas. Mm. You can see his face is fine. His face is fine. His face, his face is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then somehow when he pulls off this mask... <laughs> Half his face is disfigured and he's missing clumps of hair and everything. This movie's terrible. And as Sternfield notes, the mild makeup and the explanation for all the magic tricks in the Schumacher adaptation helps render the Phantom entirely human. He is no longer an angel or a ghost or a monster or even a magician. He is a slightly disfigured man with a sad past. (laughs) Byron. Literally Byron. (laughs) Literally fucking Byron. His leg was a bit shoddy, folks. (laughs) Oh, Byron was disfigured? Come on. Yeah, he had now a, we're talking. He had a club leg. Mm. As Sternfeld observes, critic took note of the Phantom's softened depiction, mm. uh, with one film reviewer pointing out that the Phantom's deformity looked like it could be solved with just a little clearer sill. <laughs> While another noted that when the mask comes off, he's simply not ugly enough. <laughs> but as Sternfeld notes, this makeup choice renders the Phantom a viable choice for Christine, at least in theory. <laughs> Further arguing that the final factor in the film version, as compared to the stage version, that renders the Phantom a more human, more viable candidate for Christine's love, is a feature that both Lloyd Webber and Schumacher repeatedly played up in the interviews and discussions of the film, which was the youth of the cast, with Schumacher saying that he believed the story only worked if it was understood as Christine's sexual awakening because of her attraction to the Phantom. So they are explicitly portraying him as more of a temptress rather than a villain. He's not someone who kidnaps a lady, realizes the wrongs of his ways, and does the good deed and redeemed. He was always the sexy outcast. Yeah. Yeah. Byron mm-hmm. Byron didn't invite Claire Claremont over. She sent him a letter. <laughs> <laughs> right. So all of this adds up to me, because I, I don't think there's something here in that Walter Plinge is the sexy Byron Akira, because he's not hot, mm. he's not attractive. I thought we were going somewhere where, like, Agnes might end up with him. I guess she's sort of attracted to the Phantom. She enjoys the attention from that. I guess. Maybe. But I don't think it's really there. No. Like, Salazar is definitely the gothic villain. I don't know if Pratchett quite hits this. No, I don't. I don't uh, yeah. But as far as the Phantom of the Opera itself, right, on top of it being a pastiche, um, a combination of the gothic villain and the, the sympathetic romantic hero, then in its own adaptation follows that trend of from Faust to... Don Juan triumphant, right? Mm. The success of the Weber musical and the Schumacher film and the image of the Phantom of the Opera that we have in culture today as this sexy hunk, that is Don Juan triumphant. Yeah, not... Did I do it? Yeah, you did it. Good job. I did it. You did it. Thank you. Someone who didn't take this transition too well was uh, Terry Pratchett himself. Ah. Who revealed in an interview with Science Fiction Weekly from the year 2000 that Masquerade started in a state of quiet fury at Andrew Lloyd Webber, explaining that the Phantom killed innocent people whose only crime was being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, according to Webber's musical, this is okay. As long as you look good in a mask and a tux and in the end you give it all up for love. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. You can't just dismiss the fact that people got killed. 
So I read the original work and I saw the movie, which the Andrew Lloyd Webber film hasn't been done there. So I don't know which movie he's talking about. I think maybe the TV movie with Lannister in it. And he says he knew there was a story there. So Pratchett's mad at him. Mm. But also I think there is some legitimacy to he is engaging with this transition in Masquerade. He is pitting he is pitting the original gothic villain against what it's become in Masquerade, even if I don't think he quite taps into the romantic aspect as much. Is this a good place to talk about Grebo? Sure. Because we've established that the Phantom of the Opera is Byronic. You said Grebo is Byronic, but he's not Byronic. He's a bit more Byronic here in the way I said at the start of the episode about the way Nanny and Granny are talking about him, that he's, is he an arist- aristocratic nice guy or is he just an asshole? <laughs> Byronic hero. Right, and then the answer was both, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the joke there is that, you know, aristocrats are assholes. Yeah, but also there's that tradition of them being like suave, sexy dudes, as Grebo is, but he's also an arsehole because he's a cat. But to give you the description of Grebo that Granny Weatherwax gives in Masquerade, Grebo, fully clothed, still managed to communicate the nakedness beneath. The insouciant moustache, the long sideburns, and the tussled black hair combined with the well-developed muscles to give the impression of the more loush kind of buccaneer, or a romantic poet who'd given up on the opium and tried red meat instead. He had a scar running across his face and a black patch now where it crossed the eye. <laughs> so we've got a bit of the gothic disfigurement coming in there. And when he smiled, he exuded an easy air of undistilled, excitingly dangerous lasciviousness. He could swagger while asleep. Grubo could, in fact, commit sexual harassment simply by sitting very quietly in the next room. That's a Byron move. <laughs> yeah, so is this not Byronic? Yeah, this is more Byronic than the last time we saw Grubo, absolutely. I guess, yeah, he's still missing the sulkiness. Yeah, and it's not like fully developed, it's more the aesthetic. It's the aesthetic of the Byronic hero. He can commit sexual right. harassment by being in the next room. Um, but he's not a developed figure. That's kind of my point, is the Byronic hero now is just like, oh yeah, you do the bingo of the aesthetic rather than the... Um, examination of the characterization and what elements go into it. Yeah, he's missing the um, sentimentality and the emotional depth. This is Jared Butler, right? Would we cast Jared Butler as Grebo? Yeah, he is a cat man. Yeah, that works. <laughs> so the Phantom's transition from murderous monster to Byronic love interest is also reminiscent of the modern transition of vampires, which we're going to talk about next episode. But I do want to tease a quick connection to the Phantom of the Opera, which also suggests some kind of logic to Pratchett's progression throughout the Witches series, right? Ignoring um, equal rights, which is sort of its own thing. Weird Sisters, we've got Shakespeare and the theatre. I guess there's fairy tales in there as well. But the theatre through to opera through to vampires, I think there is a progression that mirrors the cultural progression as well throughout this series. But going back to gothic drama, right, um, the fan of the opera is also... Um, represents the vampire archetype both in the book and the 1925 silent film He Sleeps in a Coffin and Christine confesses that she has never seen him in daylight. There's also a thing all through Carpet Jugulum where Pratchett describes the vampires as wearing opera dress of course, um, which is their black cloaks and things and you also have in Masquerade Nobby and Detritus considering whether uh, the ghost possibly turned into a bat and flew away when Grebo disappears. Mm. So Pratchett is hinting at this connection between um, vampires and Phantom of the Opera but I haven't actually found that many scholarly or popular references to it. Although I think the Phantom of the Opera might have as much to do with vampire portrayals as Dracula. I mean, I guess this is also the Phantom of the Opera is a pastiche. So how much is the Phantom of the Opera playing off the theatrical adaptations of Dracula itself? Mm. But in terms of the broody, Byronic vampire, that's sort of creeping 
into the fandom of the opera before it gets established in the vampire tradition, I think. Yeah, fair. Oh, and another connection to um, the vampires is, because I've been going through in preparation for Carpet Juggler and making this big table of all the different characteristics that show up in all these vampire novels. It's going to be a fun time. Fun couple episodes in your future. But something, one trope I've put is getting shot and disappearing. Okay. So, like, you know, they, they think they've shot someone and they go and check and they've, they've vanished. <laughs> that is something that happens in vampire stuff all the time. And it's something that happens to the Phantom of the Opera. I don't know if it first happens, but it happens earlier in Varney the Vampire, which is sort of the first vampire thing after Byron. It happens in that. So I think this is a trope of pulps of the time, but it doesn't appear in any other vampire things until the Phantom of the Opera. And now it has sort of become a trope of vampire fiction. <laughs> so I wonder how much that was established by Phantom of the Opera and these theatrical plays. But yeah, we'll talk more about that next episode. Woo. I think that's everything I've got. We'll be back next time to talk about Carpa Jungle. Bye! <laughs> and we're clear. That's all for this episode of Unseen Academicals. There'll be another one along in a month, but if you can't wait until then, you can sign up to our Patreon page and get all the episodes a full month in advance, along with any bonus episodes or specials that we end up doing. If you're after more of us, Alice hosts her own podcast, Of the Devil's Party, which traces the development of the satanic hero throughout romantic and gothic literature. Links to a bibliography for today's show, along with a fully referenced and footnoted transcript, should be available in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for some amusing outtakes. Which I guess I already asked you if you've seen operas. I was going to take this as an opportunity to ask what your favourite opera was. I, know, I can see what you've put. Oh, I, I left it in there, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> I wanted you to do it. Let's pretend I didn't okay. leave it in there. What's yours, Josh? Ah, <laughs> uh, space? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. What did you say last week that set me off? Oh, um, the Phantom <laughs> Op Shopera, Hip Hopera. Was that yeah. it? Yeah, I know, right? That's the correct response. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but then I'm editing it and you laugh for like, you know, three and a half minutes. (laughs) I thought it was funnier. (laughs) I know you Mm. did. (laughs) Let's go gain in the mornings for hours. Wow. There's a weird uh, soggy sound coming through my microphone, to either to you or in the recording. I just want to point out that that is Pratchett the cat grooming himself furiously on the other side of my desk. I can't hear it, but I'm so glad he's doing that. Good for him. <laughs> I love you, Pratchett. <laughs>